This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 878, Comic Talk Spotlight on X-Men Fatal Attractions. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. This is episode 878. This is our Comic Talk Spotlight. This time we're doing a bit of a throwback and we're talking about X-Men Fatal Attractions, which was the event that was to celebrate uh, the X-Men's uh, 30th anniversary. Uh, and right after it, they would do Blood Ties, which was just a cross-celebration of X-Men and Avengers, back when Avengers really wasn't as celebrated a franchise as X-Men. I'm joined uh, with my co-host, Paul Scores and Nathan Strzok. Nate, do you want to say hi? Oh, wait, wait. And Paul, how are you doing this fine evening? I am doing great. We had a very productive weekend, so it's a nice way to cap it off with a fine conversation with you two gentlemen. So let's start off talking about Fatal Attractions in general. I mean, it's it's a hugely important um, storyline in terms of what, it, well, really one, two major events that happened in it more than anything. Um, but prior to you guys kind of reading it again for this podcast, what was your interactions with this, with this uh, storyline? How much of it had you read previously? Nate, start us off. Um, I read 25, X-Men 25. I don't think I read almost anything other than that. It was, I don't know, the 90s, mid-90s, and I wasn't reading X-Men um, regularly. I had, like, dipped my toe and was buying issues here or there. I was, I guess, yeah, I was just kind of a more erratic collector. I didn't have a lot of money, and so it was kind of, I had friends in high school who, were comic book fans and stuff. They would sometimes recommend things to me and they'd say things like, you know, one year someone said, oh, there's this new Deadpool series coming out and Deadpool's a really cool character. There's an issue number one coming out and you should get it. But I just went to the comic store and I got Kelly and, um, oh, what's, um, McGinnis. 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 I knew it was a Mick. Um, McGinnis is number one and I was like hooked on that. I'm like, okay, I'll read this. And it was similar with a lot of other things. So it was X-Men 25. Someone said, here, I mean, I can, I can do spoilers now, right? Like, oh, okay. it's, it's it's a very old storyline. I think you're okay. 20, I guess years ago, ish years ago, um, that Wolverine's his his adamantium gets ripped out of his body by Magneto, and you have to read this. And so I went to the comic store and I picked up day five, and I read it. And I just felt like I thought that was the book. I thought I didn't really realize it was a crossover until years later. Um, and so, it, and even after that, I was just kind of like, okay, well, I, I understood the story. I saw the cool part, right? This The teenage version of myself is like, well, the coolest parts of a comics are the violent parts, which is no longer the my, my thinking process now. But at the time, I'm like, I, it was gory. At least it seemed like gore from my perspective back then. Looking at it now, it's quite tame. Um, especially after we've read, you know, X-Force and modern X-Force and modern Wolverine, which are all the more... Oh, much more violent. So it was only ever twenty five. I haven't read almost any of these until this decision we made to to revisit this. I'm I'm shocked because I thought for sure at least you would have read Wolverine seventy five, given your affinity for Wolverine. You would think, and you would be correct to think that. But I had not picked it up. I didn't have this single issue. I don't think it was easy to find. I don't think it was cheap. I think soon after it came out, it was kind of considered an expensive issue i was also it was like 25 was also considered expensive i don't think i got it even new now that i think about it i think i was buying i was paying 
more like the, mm-hmm. in the in the back issues for it and so it was just like a I heard about it and I was like oh man comics can become valuable that was still in my head that was still left over from the early 90s even though that had fallen out speculator market and so it was like I, I don't know how much it was it may have been 20 bucks I'm not really sure and so I was just like I don't have comic money for anything else but if I have to get one thing it has to be this so um, I did yeah it, there, there was difficulty in finding some of the other issues and I also just kind of yeah, I just, I don't know. I, I had jumped in time, too, because I had other Wolverine issues already from when he had bone claws. So to me, I guess it didn't really seem important to find out what happened next because he was clearly still alive in a few issues later in Wolverine. For sure. Now, Paul, what was your, your kind of interaction with Fatal Attractions? Uh, originally, kind of similar to me. Again, I'm not uh, hardcore into comics until Onslaught rolls around, so... But I remember I had a friend who had these. It had the original issues, and I was like blown away by the cool hologram on the covers. Right, easily tracked of that, you know, being a very '90s thing. Uh, you know, shiny trading cards and, and, and holographic things were, were all the rage back at that point. And it, like this is the same friend who also had like Age of Apocalypse stuff and this and that, right? So every now and again, we'd be hanging at his place, and I'd, I'd flip through these. Um, not really. Like it's like oh like X Men awesomeness you know I don't I can't remember was, is the animated series running at this point yes when these issues are out yeah so kind of you know doing the animated series and then like saying okay this is kind of cool but not really diving into the whole comic book thing yet because all my money was going into various different spots at the time um, but you know it, it felt like, like going back and rereading it now it was like. It had, it's very much 90s X-Men, right? It, it feels like they could have made episodes of this in in the cartoon uh, in, in so many shape or form because it really uh, hits home a lot of what the X-Men were about at the time period. Well, I mean, is it, I mean, I, I actually watched Sanctuary Parts 1 and 2 before mm. this as well just to kind of connect everything I could with it. And isn't Sanctuary kind of based off of this and also X-Men 1 through 3? I'd say more one to th- more one to three than this, but I guess I can see DNA there. Because I, as I'm not mistaken, there are parts of this storyline that are very close in that storyline. I just, I guess, I felt when I was watching it, it was a hodgepodge, but I don't know the exact timeline of the years. I, maybe I'm totally off here. Hmm. Anyway, they touch on it at least to some to some degree. For sure, there's definitely yeah, there's definitely a similar kind of vibe because I mean, you have the acolytes, you have a lot of characters that we would you know we think of as kind of being this 90s period of X-Men. So for me, I think that my first recollections of anything like what was coming for the 30th anniversary celebration was that a kid in my class um, had was going to throw out an issue of X-Men, X-Men 20, because he had cut out the pieces that he needed for like an art project or something. And I still have this issue. And it was years, oh, no. it was years before I would, I would get to read it all. But the issue 20 is where you have um, revenge, first shows up and you have her at the very end and big reveal that you know that there's an imposter and that you know this you know Psylocke isn't maybe Psylocke or what's going on so that the beginning of that plot line was in that issue and I believe and I think it was in this issue where there was promotional material showing that coming up there was this big event called Fatal Attractions is Magneto really alive and this this whole kind of conjecture and so that's always my first remembrance of this. I remember seeing that kind of the 
the promotional pages for what would be Fatal Attractions. And then I didn't own any of the issues myself for many years, but I had a friend who had the X Factor and the X-Men, and then eventually I, I think he just gave them to me because he didn't really care. And I was like, these are amazing. Like, I love these issues so much. And so those ones are like, I feel like they are imprinted upon me. Uh, Paul mentioned that they were like my, my inside-out core memories, and maybe not quite there, but pretty close because, you know, I remember them so well and they were so early on in my X-Men reading. So that that was my first kind of understanding of Fatal Attractions. And once I had money, I definitely wanted to read the rest. So eventually, you know, when they had collected editions, I was like, I'm on this. I need to I need to own this. So I, I have the dates here, because according to whatever, it's probably Wikipedia or something, but it says Sanctuary Part 2, and I guess, obviously, Sanctuary Part 1, come out in late 1993. So that's like November, December 93. So unless they were doing... Because my understanding is that animation production usually starts anywhere from 8 months to 12 months out from when it actually airs. Like, mm-hmm. they have to get time for the animators to draw everything, and they're doing script revisions. So I don't know if it's the same kind of window with the animated series, but um, Federal Attractions is coming out in 93. So unless... Like it says, July to November '93. So unless Marvel gave them a heads up, I guess it is just kind of based off of X Men One to Three, and it just so happened that they were doing something the same year in the comics and revisiting it in a different way. So that's weird. It sounds like a you're right. It does sound like a weird coincidence, but I really do believe it is just that because based on yeah the, the animation timeframes and again, if these comics were. You know, the X Factor, for example, has a July date. Well, really, that would have gone on sale two months earlier. So even so, even it's even earlier then. So it's unlikely that yeah. they would have been able yeah. to have any kind of synergy. Unless the, but of course, the planning process for some of the, and again, a lot of it's like ad hoc by the seat of their pants. Some mm-hmm. of the writers, but with some of the crossovers, we know that a year in advance they could be planning and writing something, and then the writers, the, the artists, will get their assignment a month if they're lucky two months maybe in advance mm-hmm. um so it's possible that in 92 they were like we know we're going to do this in 93 and they and the, the cartoon said hey we're looking for whatever or they spoke to the cartoon and want to do a crossover mm-hmm. um but yeah i guess i guess i we need to just i would love to hear a podcast on this i wish we were that podcast <laughs> we're not prepared enough not 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 today anyway i mean <laughs> I, it's not like i haven't talked to the creators before i could ask them and say hey guys like just a question do you do you know if you had any direction from marvel because of this anniversary happening that year i'm sure yeah, the answer would be like i don't remember <laughs> i don't remember yeah exactly you asking if you remember like timelines in 92 and 93 yeah so for our own headcanon they, they they talked to each other they they did some synergy there and they did it at the same time and that explains why Sanctuary doesn't feel like exactly X-Men 1 to 3 or Fatal Attractions mm. uh, it doesn't feel like either one it's just kind of there's a there's Magneto's in space and he has uh, a nation up there and uh, he's doing some some shenanigans there you go exactly so I mentioned earlier that again for a long time I wanted to be able to kind of own it all uh, own all the Fatal Attractions so eventually I was able to do that because I bought the the hardcover collection that they came out with, which was a long time ago. I think it was 2012. So this is about nine years ago now. Um, so they came out with this giant uh, hardcover edition. I was like, this is everything I was waiting for. I was At the time, I was buying a lot of these, not omnibuses in name, but basically omnibuses of X-Men events like Fatal, uh, Fatal Attractions was one. I got Phalanx Covenants. I was just trying to have all these big swaths of, uh, of X-Men history at the time. So that's how I kind of finally was able to uh, enjoy all of it and also enjoy a lot of extra material that didn't really need to be there. 
Um, so in terms of the different ways someone can read along with Fatal Attractions, uh, obviously there's the original issues. There's a trade that came out, I believe, in the late 90s that was collecting it. Then you have this hardcover format that was from 2012. Uh, then you have a digital version. There was originally um, a digital version that had everything. Then they split it up into book one and two. And now there's a new edition, which is a digital version and a printed version. And the printed version is one that Nate is reading from. And then there's a more, even a more recent version than Nate's version, which is the Milestones line, which came out a couple years ago, which has somewhat garish uh, covers and spine dress, which is more of like a, what is it, a yellow or, or an orange? Nate? Yeah, it's a gross, in my opinion, it's a gross yellowy kind of golden orangey thing, a border all the way around it. And I, I bought this this one specifically, uh, this 2016 version because I don't. I'm showing it. You guys know what this looks like, and the, and the listeners can't um, because it doesn't have the border. And um, now that I'm, yeah, it's a cleaner look. And now that I'm more of an epic collector, I just wonder when they will collect this in epics because I'll inevitably have to buy it again. So. Well, that's the interesting thing about this type of storyline, and I've said this before, is that this feels in a lot of ways more thematic, like a fall of the mutants, or even a, what was it, the Apocalypse Wars a couple years ago, Paul, where you had the three different X books that were involved with Apocalypse, but they weren't really connected to each other. They were having their own kind of Apocalypse storylines. This was about three or four years ago. So I, I feel like it's one of those where you could just read Uncanny and X-Men and kind of get the story you need. Um, if you just were reading X-Factor, you see their, their part in this, but it doesn't need to go much further than that. Um, so it's an interesting thematic storyline that in a lot of ways you don't need to read the other chapters to as much as something like Executioner's Song or Extinction Agenda where you need them. If you don't, if you miss yeah. a chapter of those, like good luck. Even even if you've read them all, sometimes <laughs> it's confusing enough. Yeah, yeah. We're, I mean, evidenced by the fact that I read twenty five for, and that was it for years. And I was like, I got the gist of it. I understand. Whereas X Men one through three, I would feel like, oh no, like he wouldn't want to just start and not stop and come in the middle somewhere and not end it. Um, but but yeah, it, it is interesting that now it, you mentioned the original trade as well which is again late 90s, whatever that was and I owned it and I'm confessing here that I apparently either didn't read that before I ended up getting rid of it years ago and I bought this collection to read or I read it and forgot all of it I, th- I suspect I didn't even actually end up reading it so I'm actually I'm surprised though because I just thought knowing you as a, as a reader in general and as a fan of the X-Men I just thought at some point you would have done it I don't know. I was like a student at the time in uni, and I maybe I didn't have time, or I don't know. Maybe there was a head injury. I'm not remembering, but I just that's a <laughs> big foggy part right now. Maybe the, the the iron in my blood has been augmented a little bit in my brain, and I was mind controlled. Uh, it's my time in a space station, and that's where there's a there's a gap. I'm not sure. <laughs> so for today's discussion of fatal attractions proper, we're going to start with the X Factor issue. But before we get there. Because there's a lot of content, especially if you have the book one and two uh, digital version or the hardcover that I have, there's a ton of content we're just taking a flyer on. And some of it's not great. Uh, 90s X Factor by Peter David is at times an acquired taste. It's either really something you're going to enjoy or something you want to stay or steer away from. Uh, I think Paul Paul's expression says a lot that he would rather have stayed away from it. Uh, there is one famous issue there. There's the, uh, the, the classic examinations issue, which uh, a lot of people herald as one of the best X Factor comics you'll ever read uh, in terms of being able to give you a lot of characterization of the characters of X-Factor in a way that had never been explored before. So that's a pretty highlight by um, uh, Peter David and Joe Quesada. But other than that, there's a lot of kind of, you know, so-so forgettable stuff. Um, 
in terms of X-Men, we have big events where we have Uncanny X-Men 300, which was a big kind of foil embossed cover at the time. Uh, we also have a death of an important character in 303. So, Nate, do you want to talk about a little bit about 300? Um, yeah, I do. Uh, there's stuff here and there that I guess you can mention prior to 300, but... Uh, you know, about the Acolytes and how they present themselves as these worshippers of Magneto, and that's that's worth touching on, worth looking at. There's, you know, there's also the fact that they attack a school and they kill a bunch of kids, and they're very Nazi-ish and talking about those that are, you know, are supposed to supply, those who are worthy, and no human is supposed to be worthy. They even get to this weird spot of talking about certain mutants are worthier than others, which is also very Nazi-ish. So the hypocrisy of Magneto is pretty evident, I think, early on in these, this kind of introduction of his new followers and where he's where he's going with his ideology. Um, but I, I, I like uh, focusing on the Moira stuff. Like, in all honesty, uh, even before 300, there's some moments of Moira, uh, she's kidnapped by the Acolytes in... I'll find the issue. I'm trying to find the front cover of it. This is to... Oh my goodness gracious, there's so many pages here. This is, is this, oh, it's still 300. Oh, it's the beginning of 300. Okay, so um, the beginning of 300, she's in, their, she's in their clutches. And it just reads so differently having read House of X. Now that like Moira's life is in danger in this scene, I know she isn't killed, but I'm just kind of like, it's, my, my, my chest tightens a little bit because she's so integral to the plan. And obviously there's there was no, this is a retcon, there was a plan here, but it is fascinating reading this stuff with Krokoa in mind. Um, and I feel like it has enhanced my enjoyment of Moira and it's enhanced my enjoyment of a lot of parts in the series almost entirely whenever she's in the forefront or even just, I don't know. I don't have a page number because my page numbers are wacky, but um, in 303, somewhere in the middle, after the epilogue, they, it cuts to Moira and Xavier in his secret ready room. And she's like, I confess, Charles, I didn't know that this ready room of yours even existed. And I posed as your housekeeper for not a short amount of time. And I'm like, two things are Moira. Okay, so he has a secret lair, and then later on, she gets a no space in Krakoa. <laughs> Did this come from that? But also, this confirms that she was posing as, because she's introduced like a demon, I think it is, of the Uncanny uh, or X Men uh, comic uh, called Demon, where she is the, uh, the housekeeper, and then this demon invades, and then she like brings out a giant gun and starts shooting it. It's like, wow, your housekeeper is pretty awesome. And then later on, I guess Claremont just decided she was going to be a multi-PhD mm-hmm. scientist who specializes in mutation. But I love that this is a callback to that. And she's like, it seems to confirm that she was, in fact, cleaning the house. Like, I, I didn't know this room existed. And I was your housekeeper for a time, suggesting that she, she was cleaning all the rooms. I just couldn't find this one. Like, I love that <laughs> it, it, it confirms her dedication to this plan, that she actually was cleaning his home for months or whatever it was. Anyway, so then they're talking and uh, she's regarding the Shi'ar technology. She's like, oh my gosh, you have Shi'ar technology here. That's so cool. And they start talking about other mutants. And then there's lines in this that feel like it's. We, it makes me feel like Hickman read these things and was... I know, I know I'm, I'm sure that's probably not. I'm sure it's probably me doing the legwork here rather than him making these connections. It's just like I, really neat. I, I'd say those of you who are fans of Krakoa and House of X and stuff like that, if you go back and read these issues with Moira, you can you can make it seem like they are all part of this plan right now, and everything makes sense. Even though, as Paul has pointed out, obviously it doesn't. Obviously, there's a lot of contradictions here. But I just thought that was the part. That's the part of 300 I like. I actually don't love a lot of this issue. 
It's interesting in 308. I mean, when you have Moira, you know, as a captive, and she's you know trying to convince the uh, the young acolyte to kind of turn against um, mm-hmm. Fabian, it does feel very different knowing the Moira who's lived through being an assassin, you know, being you know working for Apocalypse, like teaming up with Apocalypse. Like she seems yeah. much like it feels much more manipulative on a second read knowing that than it would have yeah. ever before that. Like, but not knowing anything of, and just thinking that she was a regular human being, it would have felt very different. Yeah, it, that's what I mean. Like, exactly. That's an example of, a great example of that. Like, she, she's either, what was she, CIA or S.H.I.E.L.D. in one of her lifetimes? She was a spy, but what? I can't remember exactly. She, but, and, 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 though, and, right? and even the question about, you know, what, what is it in X-Men, what, two or three, when she gets abducted by Magneto because of the gene altering she did in him, a lot of questions come out of that as well, because I mean, again, knowing knowing the plan, knowing knowing her lifetimes of experience, like it, it seems a lot more, you know, did 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 Magneto's body get modified by the Alpha Human or whatever that was, you know, in every reality, or is it only in this one? And then is that why she had to figure out how to kind of re redo Magneto and make it Magneto again? Like, there's again a lot of. Again, a lot of the legwork is being done by the reader, which is ingenious yeah. writing, right? Like yeah, Hickman I think gives so. Hickman gives you a premise, and then every time you read that character ever again, you're, it's going to be informed by his presence. So it's really fa- fantastic, you know, kind of retconning. That's when a retcon works: is that when it really makes you go, "Huh!" And every time you read that character again, you can't help but think about it. I would say there has to be a little bit of research on his part to make sure. Can I do something this crazy? You know, and yeah, there's going to be holes, but nothing so extreme that doesn't make any sense if you go back and I'm, read it. So. I'm curious in general if, yeah, um, I always go back to 2004 when Edward Baker brings back Bucky, and everyone's like, you can't bring back Bucky. Bucky is the third rail. You can't touch it. You can't, you can't bring back Bucky. It's just not going to be done. And he figures out a way to do the impossible. That he brings back Bucky, and it doesn't invalidate anything, but it, but it adds something new, and we're still using it today. And I feel like that type of audacity to take something that's impossible and make it possible makes Hickman more excited than anything. I think he looks at what can I bring, what can I do that makes something impossible in the Marvel Universe possible and that will blow people's minds. I think that is what Hickman really love, loves to, to play with. And, and we're just the kind of readers, I mean, this is not true only of this fandom, but of many fandoms that we want desperately for these things to line up. We want them to exist in a parallel dimension where everything makes sense somehow and it was real. And so we were, we are all motivated to do this stuff. I'm going to show you, or read, I guess, to you, uh, the next page here that, uh, in this conversation with Moira and Xavier in his secret room. Um, and it's, it's so ominous. Like, you read this with the lens of A House of X, and I'm going to read it, and then I'll show you guys... The, the drawing here, the art here, is this Peterson? Says, I can't believe the fates can be this cruel. Is, is pain and suffering, death and dying always going to be the legacy of being born of mutants? And so that's hmm. really what Moyer realizes, right? Like this is her forming that thesis or having already formed that thesis that this is always going to be the case. And then if you look at this panel, you can see this look of the steely determination on her face where it doesn't look like she's thinking about other people as mutants. She's thinking about herself and her family. Like, it's just, it's one of these things that, as I interpret it, this is Moira thinking about Krakoa, right? This is her thinking about, um, and and the fact that it's all part of another storyline of Magneto trying, taking his hand at, like, what is this, the third or fourth time? Well, he'll do it again in Genosha with his own nation. He does it in X-Men 1 through 3, mutant, um, 
second Genesis, whatever it's called. No. What's the one through three called again? Mutant Genesis. Mutant Genesis. Okay, Mutant Genesis. Because it's Deadly Genesis and there's Second Genesis. Sorry about that. So there's there's Genosha, there's House, there's um, Asteroid M, there's Avalon, and then the Savage Land also. That counts, doesn't it? Is him trying to do his own? Um, I mean, that was really him just trying to. Are you talking about like back in the day or when he was just on his own? I guess he's just being Nazi scientist, but um, he's making mutates, right? So to me, I, I has a citadel. I guess okay, it doesn't count, maybe. But there's at least three times he's like trying to become head of a nation, head of a state. And in this storyline, I have all these panels of Moira talking about thinking about what I I like to think of as as a Krakoa, as the eventual Krakoa. So there's just a lot of nation building here, a lot of conversations about how we can we um, survive, how we can make this not the destiny of being born a mutant. I just think. I think I know. an interesting aspect of 90s comics, which again gets reframed because of the Moira thing, is that the whole idea of the legacy virus seems a lot scarier to the mutants because if that was only in this reality, if the legacy virus was not something that was exposed in the other realities, now Moira's living this lifetime thinking it might be her last, and suddenly there's a virus that's targeting mutants, and, and that in theory would stop all their work before they could even get started. Like, if they have a, a destructive disease that's going to destroy mutants before they can even create their own nation, then it, it really reframes the urgency with which the character mm-hmm. is pursuing a, a, um, um, a cure much more than we thought. Like, before it was for the betterment and, you know, to save people. But if she's desperately trying to save her race and now there's this thing that's going to target them, and it also reframes the idea that when she gets infected eventually, which I guess... Like, what? How does that work? Because she, quote unquote, died, but it wasn't her. It's, but it's she a did a GR it was a golem. or whatever. It was a golem, golem or something. Yeah. But I yeah. mean, but then she dies, but didn't die. So I guess she still had the virus. But then when when Peter, you know, takes it and exposes the you know the cure to the to the air, I guess she still got affected by that and was able to be cured by it. Like, did did or she, she never got it? Right? Or she never or, had it? Or the golem? Or the golem is the one that? Right. This is the thing that. Hickman, I'm sure, is cackling about too. I never have to fill in exactly when the golem replaced her. I never have to reveal that. The fans will do that work for me, and they'll put together theories. And I, you know, we can either reveal at some point, and then maybe the Moira series, or we never have to. And it doesn't really matter because it's it's the MacGuffin to get her back and you know make her alive again, right? Yeah. Again, we're doing all the work, but I mean, it's it's cool. It's exciting to be able to reframe something like that. I guess this has always just been part of one of the things that excited me and brought me into comics, right? And particularly Marvel comics. I was never really into DC so much, even though I like some of the characters and definitely respect many of the people who work on DC. It's just this this inheritance of a legacy or mythology, and it's okay that there's lots of gaps and holes in it sometimes because we get to participate, right? In a, in, a, in a way that you don't often have with TV shows, perhaps, or with books. Video games certainly involve audience participation. That's one of the things that makes them so special, that like you are helping the text be complete by you playing it. And comics aren't as a medium like this. This is the act of being part of a comic that's also a soap opera. Yeah. That is being written sometimes like you feel like the day of the script is due. It's almost like it's being submitted sometimes. And you know, Claremont and others have admitted that they were flying by the seat of their pants sometimes or they were making things up as they went along. And I feel particularly in the post-Claremont era, and I, I guess I don't know a better time to mention this than now, um, Fatal Attractions definitely feels like fanfic. It definitely feels like Claremont and Lee did something 
in X-Men 1 through 3, uh, the most the best-selling comic of all time, right, is still X-Men number 1. Mm-hmm. So now these writers take over, and it's in this, not necessarily in the, in the best of circumstances, right? The image creators are kind of forcing a number of people's hands, forcing out Wheezy with New Mutants, with Liefeld, and forcing out Claremont, too, the way it's... It's described with with Lee on X Men, and now these and then they leave, and then now there's like a bunch of creators who are like, okay, uh, you guys take over. You got Adele eventually, and you got Nicesa, and you're taking over this ship, this incredibly um, well well to do book or series that Marvel has, this cash cow, and now they have to milk it somehow. And some of the ideas are new. And some of them are being made up as they go along. I, I, I know we'll get to this when we get to X Force Twenty Five, and they're just like he says, "It's like, oh, by the way, this is who Cable is," and they keep making up who Cable is for years. And Exodus is the same way. It's like Exodus gets introduced in um, the X Force. Is it X Force? He doesn't he fly by in X Factor. One, one of these upcoming issues, he'll be introduced, and it's X Factor, I believe, Twenty Five, and he just like he flies in front of a plane. And then flies away. That's his introduction. Who is he? I don't know. Everyone starts like looking at him, and at one point, Warpath is like, "Oh, it looks like he could be indigenous, like me." And later on, they're like, "No, he's from Paris, and he's got all the powers." And they're just kind of like making stuff up. It definitely feels like they know and they love perhaps Claremont's work, and it's just a bunch of people kind of being fans. And it really feels like fanfic. It, it doesn't feel cohesive. And so at this point. You could say, Nathan, you're making a lot of criticisms. This is unfair of you. I, I'm actually saying this as both a positive and negative. I'm saying as a positive, we get to fill in all these gaps. Like the reader is so participatory in that. You introduce someone like Cable, and he, you can't even you can't know anything about him. You can't even see his feet. For goodness sake, because he's so mysterious. Liefeld has hidden us, hidden his feet from us. You get to fill in all those gaps. So it's kind of exciting, really, to be a reader. And now we're talking about a retcon almost 30 years later from Hickman that's making us reread this. I, it, I'm excited. I kind of, I loved going back and looking for the Moira stuff. So it's complicated, but um, I think we're the kind of fans that eat this stuff up. It's funny. Cause I, I, I feel like the Moira stuff for fans of the time would have been like, this is boring. Get back to the real action. And oh, we're absolutely. Yes. X-Men one through three, the Moira stuff bored me to tears. And now I'm like, I can't, I, all I want are those pages. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's an exaggeration. Jim Lee's art is gorgeous. And that introduction of Magneto, that two-page spread of him. And then the, the follow-up, this is, again, X-Men 1, that jawline, <laughs> like a, a chef's kiss. <laughs> uh, do you want to talk about Uncanny X-Men 303 as well? Um, okay, do you want to... Do I have 303, don't I? It's the death of Ileana, so you better. Oh, yeah, I'm right there right now, actually. This is the one with all the butts. So many butts. There's so many butt shots here. I actually like the art, the really, really detailed art, but it is a little cheesecake at times. I like the Jubilee a lot. Um, so the art in this one is uh, by uh, Rich, special guest artist Richard Bennett with inks by Dan Green. Uh, who does, So I guess Richard Bennett does most of his own inks on pages 1 to 7, uh, what is it, 9 to 13 and 19 onwards, and then Dan Green does the rest, and then you have Joe Roses doing the colors, uh, and this is written by Lobdell. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's important. I mean, Paul, you were talking about this a little bit too, like the the Ilyana death, um, because of what it. I mean, you were mentioning this part, but like because of what it does to Peter. I guess is that why you were thinking this would be important. I mean, if they cut this, if they didn't put this in the trades, do you think you would care as much about Peter's 
like defecting or something? I don't think it would mean the same. I think you need you need this to show the emotional crux of that moment. Um, I do think it's interesting to reread it for a few reasons. I mean, obviously, you have a lot of you know make, um, Xavier in kind of his special rooms. You have the weird kind of helmet <laughs> they put on Ileana when, when you know to help her yeah. ease her suffering. Um, it's amazing to me how old they make Kitty Pride look because um, I feel like you know not that long after this, like maybe a year or two after this, in X uh, sorry, in Excalibur they would make a big deal of kind of making her feel young again because she was dating Pete Wisdom and now it was like very risque um, because it was like sexual and grown up and she was still like a kid. But whereas here, I feel like she feels very old. And I guess the, the reason for that is now, now you have a new, you know, child surrogate of Jubilee. So you don't need Kitty to be that young child anymore. But I feel like they almost age her up too much. And again, it's weird for people, especially who are reading comics now, to be like, wait, Magic died? How? What? Like, how did... How does this work again? Yeah. Like, Ileana has one of the most confusing arcs in terms of a character because her and Franklin Richards get aged up and de-aged all the time. Um, and in X-Men's, uh, sorry, Excalibur 71, they call her specifically an adult. They talk about her as an adult. She's like, as an adult like you or something like that. So it is does seem to be uh, on purpose. And you're right, because whenever they do this with a, a new, the newest teen on the block, everyone else has to kind of slide up. So it makes it feel like they're really the youth. They're really the ingenue here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you're right about the tech. There's so much, it almost feels like there's a tech fetish going on either with this artist or with the, this time period. You know, you've got the opening page of Gene walking into this steel room. And then you think this that the Jubilee's machine smith or something, because she's just hanging out. In this other room full to the brim of Shi'ar tech. This, there's a Shi'ar tech everywhere. And it does feel like at this time, it's starting to feel less and less like a home where people live and more of a mm-hmm. headquarters, right? Like this it's is a compound, yeah. It's much it's, more, again, it almost feels like everything is the basement of the X-Men in the movies where it's all those weird kind of sterile uh, hallways and X, X's everywhere. This kind of feels like that. It feels less like a home. Like if you go back and you read Giant Size X-Men, it's just a house. It's just a comfortable house with living quarters. And then you get mm-hmm. here and it, you're right, it's like st- it's cold, sterile tech. Uh, that's just the aesthetic they're going with. And part of that is probably... You know, if you go back to X-Men the animated series, a lot of that comes yeah. from that too. They have like a war room. They have like that kind of stuff. We don't see a we see a few of their kind of personal rooms, but there isn't a lot of time spent there except for agonizing over Gene in a photo. But I mean, that's usually about it. Yeah, like the 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 fantasy it seems of the X-Men originally as outsiders who were created by two Jewish creators and we could you could argue that the X-Men even though members of that team don't necessarily appear to be Jewish, they're probably a good metaphor for the Jewish experience in like a suburbia, um, upper-class suburbia, right? Like they don't belong there. We're not really sure if people are going to find out our secret. So that dream there seems to be maybe from either not immigrants themselves, but immigrant families um, being able to live in a really swanky mansion, right? Because nobody nobody comes from a home. None of the X-Men characters come from a home that's as nice as Xavier's mansion. It's Hmm. very upper-class. It's part of the fantasy that not only can we be with people that are like us, but we have a very nice, comfortable living condition or living environment. And then something happens along the way, and it seems like by the late 80s, early 90s, particularly the early 90s, because a lot of X-Men stuff in the late 80s is just they're in the outback. It's very kind of wild west. It's a different kind of rough and tumble adventure. Um, 
with Claremont there. It's like, I, I, I don't know if this is, again, the uh, image guys. I don't know if this is Liefeld's influence with New Mutants and then X-Force on everything becoming more paramilitary and military is cool. And then Lee comes in and there's tons and tons of tech and a bunch of the other artists who are kind of in the orbit of those very, very powerful X-Artists are also drawing tons of but there's just double-page spread shots of the Blackbird. Like this whole issue is like wall-to-wall text. Fetish. And, and there's little panels every once in a while establishing, oh, by the way, there's green outside and there's a mansion outside, but that's not what you're ever going to see here. So like, it makes me wonder if you know the X-Men animated series really shows that shift in the X-Men comics that have already that had came before it, that apparently young kids today, I don't know, in the 90s, dream of being part of a paramilitary task force, the blue task force, the gold task force. It was wearing matching almost uniforms. You got cable, uh, sorry, uh, bishops, blue and gold almost as like the standard kind of uniform. And so it it's, definitely feels like it has less heart. Mm. And I can see why the early 90s even started turning off a lot of people. But apparently also brought a lot of younger people like us into the fold and we that's all I knew that's all I knew of the X-Men I barely knew there was a mansion you barely ever see the mansion in the animated series so to me it was all about terms like take evasive action and strike teams and launch pads and you know get to the base it's always people's bases attacking other bases and so um, that's G.I. Joe terms you know what I mean so I don't know if it's because America had won this, the Cold War, and so there was this kind of like idea that that being part of a successful military operation was 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 a goal for young for young people. But I, it's interesting to place this in the historical time period, and now we have a few years later, and they're still doing it in '93. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that's most noteworthy to me here. I like the art; it's got a ton of tech, ton of butts, and Eliana dies unfortunately. Well, you got to remember, like. Like old Transformers and G.I. Joe and He-Man, a lot of that is all based on colorful characters and being a, a, a big team and having the command structure, you know, and a lot of that military stuff was prevalent back then, right? So it makes sense to keep it rolling in the 90s because that was what was popular in the 80s. And you just change it from robots and, and soldiers to superheroes, right? Some of the same concepts just got rolled into what was still happening at the time. And obviously, yeah, that, that Jim Lee textile you talk about was, was very huge back then. And it's everywhere. You see it in the uh, original All the Wildcat stuff and a lot of the mm-hmm. early image stuff. It was a very common type of trope back then with f- funky guns, pouches, really mm-hmm. cool helmets. And it's, like... If you grab like three different comics, like all three different companies, Image, DC, Marvel, you could probably see a lot of synergy and a lot of that similar tech just, just popping up, just, you know, rolling with it at the time. For sure. Yeah, Liefeld really, really loves this too, right? And I guess I see it as the Image guys setting this standard, the pace, right? They were known as like these, the young bloods, sorry, that's not supposed to be a pun, um, of the industry, all except for, what, Valentino, who was like an old man, um, who was... Setting the taste. These are Xers, Gen Xers, who were just like had their felt like they had their pulse, right, their finger on the pulse of of, of the zeitgeist. And so the MTV generation was just kind of like go moving into this grunge era of I don't know uh, certain fashion and music styles, and, and, and they had this this, I, this focus on fancy weapons and tech and metal metal arms, blades everywhere, dark claw no dark claws amalgam. Shadowhawk, that's an image guy, right? Rip, 
Ripclaw? Is he? Yeah. He's an image too, yeah. right? So something about this this very twelve year old male twelve year old kind of power fantasy was just uh, with steroids, right? With the steroids of Stallone and Schwarzenegger mm-hmm. out of the coming out of the eighties, just made this weird cocktail, um, and we were still in it in ninety three, apparently. Yep. Paul, any final co- comments before we move on to X Factor ninety two? No, I think Nate covered most of it. Like, I guess, you know, you look at what you know of Colossus and, oh, I'm Colossus from Russia. Oh, Leon, I'm a snowflake. Like, he's this, the nicest heart and soul of the team. He's like the Rhinox. You know, he, you never <laughs> see him turn, you know, evil and, and, and turn the wrong way and be so stoic. And he's, you know, at one point he's torching his art and about to you know, toss away a picture of Ileana and then just, you, you have this kid. I don't give a shit about it. Like, he's just so stiff and, like, so destroyed and distraught, and he feels betrayed by his mentor. Um, so a lot of that has zero context, kind of, without... Even even the stuff leading up to this, right? Because there's more... Apparently, there was more stuff that led up to her death and him not being able to be there when it all goes down, which then snowballs into why he leaves X-Men, because you don't understand why someone who's so pure would suddenly just walk away from everything he's he's known for such a long time so that's probably the only thing that you kind of miss out is that I should have a context to understand Colossus's eventual um, betrayal I guess he's really doing super evil at the end of the day but his his reason to, well, to walk away from the team I guess mm-hmm. um, is more clear when you have that, that knowledge but as, as you said Nate in that trade that you have there is a quick synopsis of here's some crap that yeah. went down so you kind of have the table so you're not completely blind uh ruling into the main story yeah so I, yeah it says sorry oh go ahead nate it says in excalibur again 71 right uh yeah 71 that i know you can't in x-men annual 17 he gets a blow to the head head trauma which I don't have. Does that is that included in any of your? No, probably not. Eh? So no. that's their explanation. They give the explanation that they, they suspect that one of the things that has caused him to have this shift in his personality is that he uh, was a blow to the head from the annual. Um, so that's kind of, I guess, their way of allowing Colossus to come back and just say, "Well, he was hit in the head," and so that's one of the reasons why he was acting this way. That uh, that issue was from uh, oh no you know what we do have it I believe um, that's X Men Annual seventeen that that's what you said right so that's from May yep. nineteen ninety three that is in our uh, our giant collection here it's uh, I think it's bef- right before X Men Unlimited number one so I guess we is do any, I guess we do technically it, have it here is it any good uh, I don't I, I remember the annual in general having poor art and not that I really enjoyed so. I don't think so. What, what happens to him? What 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 is the trauma? What how does he get hurt? Uh, I'd have, I'd have to off okay. off, off mic. I'll have to. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Never mind. Yeah, that's too um, too much of an ask at this point. It's this far into the show. But um, if anyone is leafing through and you happen to see it, I'd be interested to know. But we could for sure. Uh, so about X. So X Factor ninety two again. This is cover dated July nineteen ninety three. Uh, this is uh, what it's a it's a nice big price tag. It's three dollars and fifty cents U.S. So at the time, I think mo- most comics were about around two dollars in the states. So this was uh, actually no, I think 
I know Spider-Man books were like a dollar twenty-five, so I don't know. This seems pretty expensive. Uh, if you uh, gross it up for inflation in U.S. dollars, it would still be six dollars and forty-seven cents today. So that's uh, a lot of content here. Um, it's a very thick issue. It's kind of got a, a Frankenstein uh, creative team here, though, in terms of who's actually working on it. You have it's co-plotted by Joe Quesada and Scott Lobdell, but then the script is by, by J.M. DeMatteis. So it feels like very, very different tones here. Uh, in terms of how it's approached. Um, so I guess Scott and Joe kind of chatted about it because, again, this would have been, you know, Peter David's coming off. I guess, you know, Scott says, well, I'm doing these other books. I guess I'll do this with you as well. Does the plot with Joe, and then they bring in JMD to actually do the script. Um, so it's an interesting collaboration, I'll say. And all of these are exercise, right? All these um, yes. branded um, Fiddle Trashes ones, right? Yes, they're all they're all you know they're anniversary sized, which makes more sense for issues like twenty five <laughs> and seventy five, and less for like you know issues seventy two. But whatever. Yeah, so they're like they're almost like forty pages. So that's that's I mean it's costly, but at least you're getting a bunch more bang for your buck. What do I don't I'm out of touch. I only buy trades. What are individual issues costing now, US? Uh, usually three ninety nine or four ninety nine. It's interesting because I remember uh, a lot of people, in the, like when I was on message boards in like the early to mid-2000s, and at the time, our, our the Canadian dollar was really bad around 2000, and it got much better as it got closer and closer to 2007, 2008. So suddenly stores started really bringing down prices on the, what we had to pay because what we were paying was always so much higher. So yeah. people in the States were starting to freak out that their prices were really you know starting to go up, and I was laughing because my price was going down by a major degree. Um, so in and around, like in the mid-2000s when comics were like starting to hit 299 in the States, uh, I was paying routinely 375 to 425 So I was very happy when prices started going down. I had my yeah, shop selling me American cover for quite a while. Plus a discount on top of that. That's pretty awesome. Nice. Yeah. I had to, I just to change shops recently because I just my, my shop is moving and I just wasn't super happy anyway. But the one I moved to is not they're not charging US cover. It's it's more and I'm like, oh man, I'm glad I don't buy as many books because I buy a lot more digitally now, but it it was definitely hurting my wallet a bit. And of course, I guess we're avoiding talking about X Factor because we don't like it. But um, it's also <laughs> ironic too because a lot of the books get they say printed in Canada. If you look at the mm-hmm. the small print, so they they get shipped up here. Actually, sorry, they don't get shipped up here. We get the paper up here. the The information gets sent up here for a lot of comics. Get printed here and then shipped back down to the states to be distributed back to us at a higher price point or something mm. anyway that's so that's neither here nor there i suppose uh, i'm not here to complain about um that, that kind of uh, divide but i suppose but uh, the art here is nice i like to see earlier casada that's cool not a big fan of the story i don't know there's it's it definitely makes the act it's one of several stories that shows the terrifying actions of the acolytes it shows them as absolutely nothing but villains they are butchers of human beings and it's highlighted early on by a nurse who gets wrapped up in Senyaka's psionic whip and burns and it looks like it scars up her entire neck and face it's horrifying so that definitely and she dies I think and that definitely establishes the threats some more um, I don't know that I needed that but I get it but Casada's um, art is, is makes everything very very creepy and evocative. So I enjoy the art quite a bit. 
Um, I think it's cool that they're coming at it from the Quicksilver angle. I think it makes complete sense that that he would kind of be the star of the show, as it were here. As it were here, that the acolytes would be obsessed with him. They call him the Sun. Talk about sacrilege. You know, oh, sorry, this is um, Wolfsbane saying it's sacrilege, but like that's you know they're bowing down in front of him, and so it's highlighting how crazy they are, how dogmatic they become, and um, that that's all good. I don't think it's a bad issue. I think there's some weird things like, again, um, Exodus appearing without a word and then disappearing just so that I guess Casada could show off his newly designed character without any kind of explanation. Well, it's so in- there's things to like. It's interesting because obviously they, they would have known that they're about to use Exodus in Blood Ties, which was like just yeah. right after Fatal Attractions. But you're right. It does seem like an odd kind of choice. Um, I do appreciate that because again I read this when I was much younger before I'd read pretty much anything else with Quicksilver and so I'm always surprised that they never they haven't leaned as heavily into this type of Quicksilver story more and that uh, like often we see a lot of with him and his sister but they don't touch on at least back when he was canonically still Magneto's son they didn't touch on that as much as I thought they could have and should have and this was a good showcase for you know especially with a group that you know idolizes Magneto and at this point Magneto is thought to be dead so he's a martyr to the cause that it makes sense that they would elevate and want Quicksilver to join them so I was really much very much enjoyed the characterization on him and also the breakdown of the relationship at this point with Valerie Cooper and X-Factor like when I started reading X-Factor on a regular basis, it would be a year or two after this. And it was when Forge was on the team, and this would have been coming after on, uh, sorry, after the Age of Apocalypse. So this era of kind of the Val Cooper version of X Factor, I, I've generally not been as familiar with. So I did like this kind of destruction of the relationship between her and Quicksilver, and you know what Project Wide Awake really was. Yeah, that's also true. That's an important thing. The Project Wide Awake story point is actually meaningful. It's not a throwaway because it comes back. Up several times throughout the year, so mm. that is good too. And and the art, some of these art pages, the X Factor costumes are just so good. And you've got Alex and his, I think his coolest costume. I love the jacket over the yeah. the <laughs> giant gold X. Um, and sadly, not Lorna's. I think this was a Casada redesign too, wasn't it? This gold and yellow, sorry, believe, this gold and red. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. This is definitely um, given the constraints of the Comics Code Authority, very violent. Um, like yes, some, it is. Like, the eyes being gouged out. Yeah, and then like the slashing, and like even the cover has some of that, you know, kind of odd, not blood, but blood. Um, not quite as bad as SNES's version of Mortal Kombat, but like, you know, still trying to kind of cover up what it actually was. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's probably the mo- one of the more violent of the issues, and I guess that's just Quesada wanted to do that. I think yeah, this I is one of those issues in the crossover where, like, if you were a regular X Factor reader, yeah. you know, this fit right in line with what you were reading, and, and and continues on. Their story doesn't really add anything to the greater scope of the overall crossover because X Factor kind of doesn't appear anymore after this at all. Mm-hmm. I guess they, they they play their part. You see Exodus. Now I know she's not introduced in this particular issue, but is this Random's like a few issues back? Was this Random's first ever appearance? Is where Random kind of comes from? Um, these issues of X Factor. Uh, I, um, I I would have to double check exactly when he first appeared. Okay, let's do it. I think it's similar. I think. Uh, oh yeah, it was uh, X Factor eighty eight. So just a few months earlier. So it would have been in some of this like ancillary material that you've been reading. Yeah, here. back in book one, right? Yeah, yeah. So I felt like when he was when I was reading that stuff, like, oh, this is, I guess this might be random's kind of first kind of foray, and you can clearly see that I'm not quite sure what his powers really are yet. Um, I'm pretty sure they still random. don't know. 
<laughs> Come on, Paul, do your own research here. You're asking us to look up what people's first appearances are. What's going on over there? Fingers uh-huh. broken? So I, I'll ask this as we go, and I, I feel like this is I, – I mean, obviously – and maybe I'm projecting, so I apologize in advance. But I feel like when we look at each chapter or each of these branded installments of Fatal Attractions, I feel like X-Men is probably going to be number one regardless um, because of its importance. And also it probably has the best art and probably the most coherent story. And then after that, I don't know, We could it might be a, a multi-way tie for a second. Would you put the X-Factor issue at the bottom, or would you put it kind of in the middle? i put X-Force at the bottom. Really? Okay. Yeah. I, it's, it's, a, it's not a bad X-Force issue. It's just I, they could have just said, by the way, Cannonball and Rusty and Skids are here. You know, like, or they, they were here and they're gone. You know, like it doesn't. I feel X Factor actually has things that are a little bit more interesting, like how it builds a little bit to the the conflict that you'll see between Quicksilver and Magneto once they're on Avalon. And Quicksilver is also important in the Wolverine issue thereafter. So Quicksilver, I feel, is a is a more important tether than Rusty Skids and the fact that Cable and Cannibal used to be there. Yeah. So I know that that Cable uh, splash page with on the with the title there is pretty on point. So. Are we going to X Force now? Thanks. Yeah, I, I think we're I think we're ready for X Force. X Factor, I enjoyed again. I've uh, has a special place in my heart. I think it's again got great art. It does have a, a coherent story. Uh, as Paul said, it works well within X Factor's ongoing narrative at the time without feeling derailed. Um, and considering how many cooks were in the kitchen, I thought it was pretty well handled. Yeah, I can agree with that for sure. So if we move on to X Force, this is X Force twenty five. This is a big. The anniversary issue. I do like actually something on the covers of each one where they have a little bit of like a a quick kind of one note. Like on X Factor, it was Fatal Attractions, Out of the Light and Into Thy Father's Shadow. And then here on X Force, we have Fatal Attractions, Home is the Warrior, Behold Now the Exodus. (laughs) Oh. This just kind of comes back to what I was saying before about it sometimes feeling like, and it depends on the writer, um, a little bit of fanfic because there, there definitely seems to be attempts to echo Claremont's highfalutin, you know, verbosity in terms of how he presents character dialogue and some of the titles. Um, Some people have called it Baroque style of writing. um, That really, when you see a lot of these authors go off and do their own thing years later, like to me, I always thought, oh, I guess this is how Lobdell writes. This isn't how Lobdell writes. When you read how he writes other things, it's it's Lobdell doing Claremont, right? Mm. It feels like this is Nicieza doing Claremont. So when you hear, especially in, um, what is it, Uncanny 304, um, with the way that Magneto is talking and the back and forth and with Xavier and Magneto and these huge, long sentences with unnecessary appendages and, again, quite great uh, loquaciousness and verbosity. Like, okay, like the, the modern-day Magneto and Xavier don't talk like that, right? They're not – it feels like Hickman's no longer trying to do Claremont. And I guess you can't blame them because Claremont was X-Men for many, many people. That's all it was, that, that voice. So that's just what it kind of reminds me of, that whole – is the warrior behold the now the exodus mm-hmm. um, before we move on past the cover uh, Paul I recognize this image of Cable too it's very very defi- very noticeable very definitive I've seen it elsewhere where else has this appeared I, like what I want to say that it's a trading card of this it was it was remapped into a trading card for sure um, but yeah it was a very familiar image as well and I, I adore it I think it's absolutely stunning uh, drawing of Cable um, this is but yeah, yeah which is also awesome 
Um, What's interesting about this, if we look at, again, uh, I'm not really skipping past the cover per se. I'm just looking at the credits here. Um, the laundry list of inkers involved here definitely points out some of the issues that this book, the X Office in general, would have been having. That you have it's written by Fabian and it's got artwork by Greg Capullo. Capullo, sorry. And then on I like the, Capullo, but it, doesn't he say Capullo? I like Capullo, but I'm not what sure. Does he say? I'm not sure now. I, I've listened to interviews now. I forget. Um, okay. From from an inker perspective, you have a Whitechek, Green, Ryan, Palmiotti, Hannah, Conrad, and Milgram. So that's seven different inkers in this book, um, yeah. and I feel like you can feel that um, as the book goes on that there isn't as much of a consistent tone because you have so many different inkers working to get this book out on time. And it's not the inker's fault; it's not even the penciler's fault necessarily. It's the schedule the book was on, and suddenly it's a double sized book. And maybe Capullo couldn't handle it at the time. Who knows? Or maybe he got the script late from from Fabian. Um, again, how much of this was uh, Marvel style? So again, with going back and forth in terms of plotting, and, you know, giving him a plot, him developing the art, and then having a script on top. Who knows? Um, but I just feel like there's so much more involved, and I think you lose Capullo as a as a driving force here because you have so many different inkers involved. Whereas when you look at X Factor. You just had Milgram doing the inks. That was it. So it was a consistent tone, and I feel like X-Force needed that. Yeah, okay. I mean, I guess it is what it is with the production. Although, if you're going to have a rougher kind of feeling to a book, I suppose X-Force is a rough book, like just by nature of it being this kind of weird paramilitary thing. Um, but there are things, too. Uh, like I, I really like a lot of Capullo's, Capullo, whatever we're going to say, his breakdowns. But there also is this... <laughs> um, sheen the softness to a lot of characters' faces who probably should look a little older. Like Cable, in many instances, looks like he's like a twenty-year-old. I don't know if I can show you this. Um, yeah, I don't know if you're seeing what I'm trying to show you, but anyway, you you could um, imagine a very soft, young-looking Cable. So it is interesting how he feels almost like around the same age, maybe like five years older than, than um, Cannonball at times. And that's the kind of stuff that I would like to maybe see if the pencils themselves have been like there's less detail in the art because the inkers were rushed or the inkers were there's so many of them and what would the original look for some of these characters used to be but other than that yeah I guess it's it a, is what it is it's a bizarre issue too because um, you know when you read Uncanny X-Men 300 etc and you have the idea that like the X-Men are still under the assumption that Magneto's dead they don't know he's alive yet and this issue just kind of throws him out there like it's <laughs> Like, like he's just kind of there, and you'd feel like, wait, what? And I feel like the, the X-Force never goes to the X-Men and lets them know or sends them a postcard saying, hey, guess what? Magneto's back. So it feels like an odd choice. That being said, that first shot that Capullo does of Magneto, first of all, is super ripped. But other than that, like, it's pretty, it's a pretty <laughs> awesome shot. Like, the energy effects bubbling around his hands, like... Well, not not that one, Nate. Not 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 the not the hooded one. I mean, like the full costume reveal when they, when uh, Cable shows up uh, to, to he's, take him out. He's still ripped in the hood, though. But I got okay. Let me find that one. I get that one. Like I guess they were trying to kind of make it like, ooh, who's this? But like, come on, there he is. He's a badass yeah, there. Mean, but were they were they really trying to get us to think who it was? Like I didn't read this when I was whatever fifteen. But I'm pretty sure I would have figured it out as soon as I saw this guy also ripped with red eyes. And just like he finishes a sentence for the greater good of mutant kind. You, sir, Bobby, no, it, 
cannot be. <laughs> like, yeah, okay, it's Magneto. Like, gotcha. And then it's like, and then they give it away too. The, the iron, he says, the iron content in their blood, this is Skids and Rusty, uh, blocked by rerouting the, silic, uh, the circulatory flow from the biologically affected portions of their brains, blah, 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 blah. He frees them. Like, he's affecting the iron in their blood. Like, there's no... I don't know who would not get this. So you're right. It is a, it is a kind of a, I don't know, a weird choice to make him semi um, shadowed or, or, yeah. or obfuscated. And then it's like, well, we really know. And then he's like, okay, it's my video. And he has his old costume on and, I mean, if you think about it, like what what Magneto does to, to Cable's body here, it's actually much worse than than Wolverine's because Wolverine at least has a healing factor. You know, he could he could maybe stitch himself back together, but like it's pretty brutal. Out and again, they don't really know what what Cable is yet or how the techno organic yeah. virus works. So they're just kind of again flying by the seat of their pants, not really knowing yeah. exactly what this means for the character. He just looks like a cyborg. He's just a cyborg, and then he's disassembling the machine part because there's like gears and stuff inside of there and tubes. And I'm like, like ah. I hope the, I hope the coloring on your version, Nate, is better than mine because on mine on the page where like it's where Magneto on the top page. No, after that, I think it's the next page after the one you're showing me. But you have Magneto at the top of the page, kind of ranting over the weird puddled mush that was uh, Cable. So at the bottom of that page. This is what I want to see. There, yeah, so it's it's a little bit better colored down yours, but it's this weird, like, sheen, like, white glob of person. Like, it's just like, what happened with the colorist here? Yeah, no, yeah, they <laughs> they didn't know what it was either, so they stopped coloring. <laughs> like, it's not even like a person. It's just, it, it's, yeah. it, it, I would almost think it was Iceman. Like, it's just like, is it ice color? Like, what, what am I looking at? It was like rotators, like, like, robotic. When you're looking at pictures of what, Cable used to be, it, it's definitely a machine. Like definitely, Capullo was either under the impression or told that he's a he's the Terminator. I mean, that's again what Lifel basically did. He's a he's a good Terminator. He's half machine, half human, and so they just he just messed up a machine, right? So this is definitely part of that. We're going to make it up as we go along, kind of thing. It's a, it's an interesting fight. Like I mean, I, it's cool to see what, what happened if Cable fought Magneto, and you find out immediately he just runs roughshod over him like he's nothing it's interesting though because again this is a version of Cable that they didn't hadn't figured out his powers yet because I feel like yeah. you, you throw in modern Cable it's a very different story yeah um, TK can help but yeah, yeah without but they, that but they didn't know what to do so they couldn't do that I, it's interesting we gotta remember at this point Magneto had parted in very poor ways with the new mutants so this is the mutants go their own way they end up beating Cable they become X-Force so there is um, you know, there is a reason for this issue to happen, uh, besides just putting their two kind of mentors against each other. Um, but I mean, I think it would be have it would have been very interesting for pe- people who have been reading from the New Mutants days to see what this interaction is like now that they've become so different and you know they're part of a paramilitary organization. They're not kids anymore. They're not students now. They're soldiers. To see what that interaction would be like with their former mentors. So I think at the time, readers would have really. Appreciate yeah. the readers who hadn't just jumped on with X Force because obviously a lot of people did with that, but people who had actually been reading with New Mutants for you know a few years before would have probably gotten a lot out of something like this, even if they probably wouldn't have been enjoying the twenty five issues of X Force that came before this. Um, but they would have probably enjoyed that. Oh wait, we're finally getting back to who the characters used to be. Well, I'm glad we got into the Magneto part too because hopefully we could talk a little bit about this either now or as we go along because like Magneto this also is part of the 
the fanfic part portion of, of the writing of the X-Men, right? This is part of what Bob Harris's editorial push with X-Men 1 through 3 that they wanted Magneto to be a villain again, right? Mm-hmm. This is, as I remember it correctly, and so he had been reformed. Claremont used all, spent all this time writing him as a man on a road to redemption and that he was no longer essentially just like a mutant fascist that he was in the 60s. He was just like, I am a villain and I'm going to destroy humans and I'm going to kill anyone who disagrees with me. And he's, he's very, this one note kind of character, kind of unimpressive. And all of a sudden Claremont's like, no, he's got depth. He was, he was in the Holocaust, although he doesn't say he was a Jewish man at first. Um, and then he builds this great kind of empathetic character. And that's kind of where I feel Magneto is now. Like Magneto is back to around that space where Claremont had him in the 80s and then Marvel's like no the X-Men need an archivillain and he has to be just like evil evil we'll basically make him a space Hitler and we're going to make him go into space and try to kill humans and commit genocide and so Claremont didn't want that to be the case but he's like if it's going to happen I want to be the one to write it and so he wrote it and X-Men 1 through 3 is still a really good story I still really like Genesis I think it's really good um, and then he leaves he he, he quits and then they're left with what do we do next and so Magneto disappears at the end of that for a while right and then he comes back um, for Fatal Attractions this is his next big event I don't know if there's anything really about Magneto in between and he's back to being the, the space Hitler he's back to being like yep yeah, um, I'm going to kill everybody and nothing else matters so there's there's no vestige of the man he once was as a new mutants leader and then he disappears again for a time and then there's Genosha yada 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 and then we get to New Mutants, and Morrison is like, no, that's basically who he is. He's going to pose as Zorn, and he's going to end up being the space Hitler again, except this time not in space. And he's going to go nuts in New York and be all about killing humans again, and they have to decapitate him. He kills Gene, they decapitate him. So there's, it seems like this fight has been going on in Marvel between people who are like, Magneto has just become the thing he most hates. He's become Hitler. And then people who are like, no, the Claremontites who are like, no, he's a man who can be redeemed, who has been redeemed. He is now, you know, another appendage or part of the Xavier dream um, in his own kind of way. And so I find that interesting that this back and forth, there is no one kind of continuity for Magneto. He's kind of bits and pieces depending on who you ask. Explaining why all, like, I know you hate all the movies, but it's the same kind of flip flop in the movies too. Like, what side is he on? Who's he really with? And, you know, what kind of characters you want to be? Like, I feel like in, in this whole crossover, they do this crazy job making him this, you know, heavily powerful, like, you know, quote unquote, Omega level mutant that is nearly unstoppable. And, you know, they have to give an excuse for Xavier to push himself to these extreme limits to, to stop him. Right. This is part of that build up. Here's kind of like the first mission of, uh, going to, to Avalon and, and, and trying to do something about it, and he decimates Cable, and basically uh, X-Force has to retreat to save him, you know, and he pretty much does the same thing to the X-Men, decimating Wolverine, and they have to rush back and save him. So, you know, it, it took extreme measures to kind of stop him from his diabolical plot. Yeah, it's like a dry run for Magne- for Wolverine, isn't it? The, the disassembling or destroying Mag- uh, Cable's body, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you want to talk about Uncanny X-Men? <laughs> Move along. Sure. So yeah, again, sure. this would have been uh, cover date of September. So this would, would have been a nice summer book. 
Uh, this you have JR. JR has uh, you know returned to Uncanny already. Uh, on the cover we have uh, an offer of salvation, a betrayal most bitter. Um, I do like the Capullo designed uh, hologram. Um, it's a great shot of Magneto. Um, so that's I, I would say a very iconic image. Um, probably one of my favorite parts of this issue is just the first page of Fabian uh, Fabian uh, Cortez just being utterly like like just ripped apart by his own people because as a kid I'd read X Factor I read X Men I didn't see this and so I didn't know where Fabian went <laughs> I was like where did Cortez go Oh he got uh, punted hard but again as a kid not having made that connection I also had read Blood Ties. Again, when I was younger, not realizing, because I don't think I was reading it as it was happening. So when I read Blood Ties, I didn't know it was like literally the month after. So, because that's all about Fabian Cortez again, and him kind of taking refuge, going to Genosha, stealing Luna, all sorts of stuff. It makes a lot more context once you see how he's treated by the Acolytes here. I don't like this issue. Okay. So, uh, Paul, do you want to say something nice? I don't want to like tear it apart. <laughs> well, it's got you know my favorite artist, Jared Jr. I'll be trying lots of fun things. So I don't know many we abs. Touched, we we touched on a lot of this already. I think in our conversations, like you have again, they, they, there's that blur with Magneto in the middle. Um, you have him coming down and crashing the funeral for Liana, right? And the X Men. You know they're going all out to try and subdue the these foes who come in and attack them, and the X Men get owned to a certain degree. Like they kind of subdue the Aquas to a certain degree, but that no one can touch Magneto, right? They got you know uh, Bishop going all out with his power, can't touch him. You got Rogue kissing him, can't touch him. Um, you know, then I, it's, I, we circle back to the, those moments with Colossus, you know, being all stoic and, and burning his art. So like, all this stuff kind of happens here. I think we've already kind of covered. Uh, this kind of middle chapter um, of the series, really. There's uh, there's too many artists on a book like this. Again, it was an anniversary issue. It was a you know, although they just had one four months earlier. You know, they had 300, and now they're having another giant size issue. So you have John Romita Jr., Jay Lee, Chris Sprouse, Brandon Peterson, and Paul Smith, and a lot of these guys do not have compatible styles. So I do feel like this book is a little bit of a, especially when you get to the Jay Lee portion. I mean, it looks good, but tonally so different from the issue the pages before it that you feel artistically um, whiplashed. Um, and even like on the inks, you have a bunch of different inkers. So it's not even like you have all these different pencilers and one inker bringing it all together. You have very different inking approaches as well. So I find that artistically, this book is extremely uneven. It's like it has a lot it kind of wants to do, but there's just it's a lot of a mess. Like there's some great shots, and by great I mean not not Paul's favorite of Magneto by JRJR, where I just don't even know where to start with JR uh, sorry, with Magneto's body. Like it's just this issue feels like we're getting so much like the big kind of splash page of Magneto kind of showing up at the um, at the funeral like it's such a weird shot up up the, up at his crotch and the way his legs are kind of spread and it just it does it's supposed to be this big iconic like you know him covering above you and looking so intimidating but instead it looks like he's about to land on them like it just looks very awkward and a lot of the art is awkward and maybe not the best paced um, yeah I, I find it a very frustrating book yeah, yeah. I, I feel it's a slog to get through. Um, Paul already said it. it it's, a lot of this has been said before. There, about two things happened of real any interest in this issue. Ileana has a funeral, and Piotr goes with Magneto. Everything else is just bluster 
and yelling. There's so much yelling and saying the same things over and over again in slightly different ways. Enough, Magnus. No more. No more to you, Charles. You don't really understand. I'm more powerful than I've ever been. Oh, Magnus, you've lost your way. You never had a way. It's just oh, it's just like the most boring. You know, the people who dreamed of Malcolm X and um, Dr. King having a debate. They never had a formal debate. And obviously people – and this isn't what Jack and Stan were doing when they made the X-Men. But later on, I think Stan said, oh, yeah, yeah, basically we were doing uh, Malcolm X and, and Dr. King. Um, but if, if, if Dr. King and Malcolm X had a debate and it was this kind of level of just screaming at each other back and forth, people would be like, oh, wow, this is not really meaningful at all. This is just feels like a bunch of children screaming. And that's what it feels like. It feels like children screaming. There's not philosophy. There's not a lot of intellectualism. It's cross shots, abs that are out of control and screaming matches. So, yeah, it's not my cup of tea for sure. It's Your whole back and forth there reminded me of the entirety of Transformers Earthrise on Netflix recently. <laughs> that was so, Every episode yeah. was Optimus Prime, Mega Sean. Yeah. Same yeah. garbage, back and forth, yeah. back and forth. Yeah. Shut up. It was so yeah. bad. A slog. Yeah, we're replacing actual interesting dialogue with just a, the repetitive shouting match. Doesn't make something adult. Doesn't make something intellectual. No. Um, yeah. And so it's frustrating to, to have that. Uh, and you mean, a lot of these issues were like are so wordy. Like get, getting through like a lot of these books was like, man, there's just a lot of exposition and a lot of talking, a lot of and, word bubbles and squares, and a lot of it is like some of it matters, but a lot of it's like, oh my god, I get it. Let's, and let's yet, when when you read some of the Hickman issues of X Men, you're on the edge of your seat, right? There's words all over the place, like uh, you know, Nightcrawler is talking to Cyclops, and stuff. like those conversations. Someone sitting down in a Dugan book in, in, in Marauders or in Cable and they're just like having a conversation they're like oh this is great this is interesting oh what's going to happen next uh, Ten of Swords are having a dinner oh what's going on who's doing what who's putting water who's drink like it's it's engaging and there's words all over the place but I, I want to I want to see the conversation I want to have that head of that this is nothing is stimulating to me it's, it definitely feels like well Image is doing a lot of yelling and energy and they're selling a lot of comics we should just do that Hmm. Uh, artistically, I want to touch on for one point. So, first of all, JRJR is one of those people who I am—I hate his technology. It's just—it's always laughably bad, and like the detail, it just looks so sloppy. So, seeing you have to him, look no further than his Hulkbuster armor design from World War Hulk. <laughs> I know. Or, or the that Phoenix correct. Buster, Phoenix Buster from oh, AVX. Phoenix Buster may be worse. Yeah. Um, yeah. His his rendition of uh, of Avalon is just this weird. It's just it's not good. It's it's very poor. Um, what I w- want to say about Jay Lee, you get that first page and it's very striking, and you have like a young Magneto with with uh, with his daughter in his arms, and that's a really striking image. And so I, yeah, the Paul, uh, Nate showing it. So I really like that. And that page, like those first two pages of the Jay Lee art, is really moody, and you're like, holy crap! Like you know, Magneto gets shot in the head. You see the blood coming out. Like it's very gripping, right? And then you have the next page. Which Nate is showing, and it's so to the max. It's like the absolute most fury someone could have, and it's just like, whoa, Jay Lee, why? Like you didn't need to do that. Like it's just you have a super ripped version of Magneto. Uh, his, his his shirt is like bursting. It's just I don't know. It's just totally doesn't make any sense. It's the same artist, but you flip the page and you're like, what is going on? And I feel like. I felt that way all the way through this issue. You'd have a really good page of, of art, and then the next page would be like, I don't know what's happening. Why? Why are they doing this? 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, like, I, I wanted to enjoy it because, again, there. I think that in theory there are some interesting things here. I think that if they, yeah, I, yeah, don't even. Some of the colossus art is terrible. It's, it's, it's reboot right there. Yeah. Um, I feel like if they had taken this issue and maybe taken out half of it, maybe it would have been better. Like I think they were just padding because they knew that the the next the the, the real action packed uh, issue was going to be the next one, which is X Men twenty five. So I feel like it's so much padding. It's so much padding. Yeah, um, and that's the thing with like the Netflix, some of the Netflix Marvel TV shows. There were thirteen episodes, and I'm like, I liked five of them. And there's so much in between of just like you have to get to that number, so you pad it out. And I don't want to pay. I wouldn't want to have paid in the '90s the extra cover price to have the same thing happening over again. Rogue's gonna kiss him again. Like she, <laughs> so they did the next men one through three. They just like, or she was kissed by Fabian. Like there's all the same kind of beats. You know what I mean? This is the fanfic stuff. It's the same kind of beats. Yeah. With the same exchanges and the same power displays, and to an extent, we get the same thing in in a better issue in X Men twenty five. There's similar beats there as well. Um, that one feels like there's there's a tension there. There's an excitement. Like again, they're doing something. It's literally not someone crashing, you know, a funeral and being like blah blah blah. It's it's like they have to break into a space station and figure out a way to stop the person. Like this is that's true. But there's, if, there's I just issue. went back and looked at X Men one through three, and it's very very similar. Right? They true. go to a space station. They encounter Magneto. At one point, Wolverine's coming around the bend with his claws. And Magneto's like, "No, get away, Wolverine!" It's in this one, he gets closer to Magneto. But it just feels like a lot of the beats are very, very similar, uh, including the Nick Fury, Moscow being afraid, and New York mm. and uh, Washington. That's exactly from X Men number one. So um, I'm not saying I hate X Men 25. It's just there's a lot of stuff that's similar. In, in I mean, I'm sure. I mean, who knows, right? But I mean, it was two years later. I'm sure they were like, we should do some callbacks. Because, again, at the time, it may not have been as easy for people to necessarily flip back to something that came out two years earlier, right? Like, it's not like it is today, um, and the mentalities were different. So, it, although it was the best selling issue, so. Yes, true. It was the best selling issue, and uh, everyone already read it. I suspect that Claremont is a better writer, and they didn't have as many ideas. Maybe. That's what I suspect. Before we leave Uncanny, um, again, one of these things where, like, I feel like there's a few good moments here and there. Like, when Xavier's dropping and he gets picked up by Archangel, it feels very X-Men that, like, I'm here, Charles. Of course you are, Warren. I'd expect nothing less from any of my X-Men. And I feel like that feels like the animated series. Like, that feels like I could hear Cedric Smith reciting that dialogue, and it, it would it would seem right. Yeah. Yeah, and can we talk about, maybe now or later, the two Xavier's? The fact that the tone... The tonal shift in a in a very nice panel that you're talking about, I agree. That's the Cedric Smith voice. That's kind of how I like to read um, Xavier when he's in an issue. And then we go back to some of these other issues of um, this is Uncanny 298, where Xavier is in his secret room again, and then Bishop comes in and he's basically like, "What the hell, Bishop? Get the hell out of my room, stupid idiot!" Like he's just like a jerk. He, he goes back and forth, and it's something similar in X Men 25. Where there's a lot of jerky, callous lines, and I, I get it. They're they're trying to emphasize that he's kind of he's at his wit's end. He they mention at one point that he's become more callous and more on edge. But I, this doesn't end here, and it doesn't start here. There's is an interesting disconnect between the X Men animated series and previous issues of, of, of Xavier, and then this era in the mid '90s where he's kind of an a hole. And so when you get to Deadly Genesis, 
and you find out that Xavier had an original team and they died in Krakoa and he's like oh well I'm gonna wipe all your memories and we're gonna have like a new team that kind of like oh Xavier's so callous and dark I feel like he was I felt like that was consistent with 90s Xavier in a lot of ways mm. so after this Xavier gets even darker and you're like well it's because the needle part went to his brain but I'm saying this didn't start here, and so it's. I guess it's a choice on the part of the writers to say maybe Xavier needs to be BA. It's the '90s; he's got to be hardcore. I don't really know why, but I don't like it. Mm. So, well, let's let's talk about X Men Twenty Five because that's the I, I think the big heavyweight in terms of. That's why we're here. That's what we're here for. I mean, yeah, I think, this is the money issue for sure. I think <laughs> that's well. I mean, I think that's true. I mean, I think that's that's why people talk about this storyline. I think that's the one that. People remember and enjoy, and there are obviously problems with it, but there's a lot of things that are easy to hand wave and be like, ah, it's okay. It's it's fine. Uh, it's written by Fabian Nicieza. It's got pencils by Andy Kubert. It's got one inker, Matt Ryan. Thank, thank, thank goodness, by the way, for Andy Kubert. Yes. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I am not familiar with Matt Ryan as an inker, but he seems to do a fairly good job of, I mean, like when I look at it, this it still feels like, you know, what I expect from Andy Kubert. Uh, and you got colors by Joe Roses. Um, I, you know, it's interesting how much of the runtime of this issue is really on the runtime of this issue. You know what I mean? That, sorry, sorry, the page count. Sorry, you know what I mean? Yeah. Got to keep it light here. I know what's the best about this issue, Adam, is all the smoking, all, all the on like a stogie so was thing in there. There's so much smoking. And the Fury is is just got a, well, like, a dirt going. It's you, great. You have that first page, which is all about you know people talking and worried about Magneto, and then you know Forge turning on this you know series of satellites to kind of protect them from Magneto. Um, and then you have like the shot of Magneto thinking about it, him with his acolytes, him you know launching an EMP, and then you just have pages of like, oh look, it, it takes place in the Marvel universe. So here's here's the thing: getting out of the shower with the Stogie. Yeah. You know. I'm gonna bubble yeah. bath. Oh, bubble, bubble bath. bath. Sorry. Okay. Well, that's more that's more forgivable then. So he's had the bubble rocks. bath. You have the uh, I can't remember why um, Sunfire had this costume, but it's such a weird choice for a costume for a guy who just like you know. I his, love it. You love it? I love it. It's so 90s and edgy, but it's also the samurai aspects of it. It seems yeah. like they're kind of, he's like using yeah. samurai armor. And and Shiro is a, is a pretty nationalistic guy. He's pretty... Very much you know, so. This is probably so the longest that, hair he's ever had. So the fact that he would kind of um, endow himself or, or, or uh, don these kinds of vestiges... Um, Makes sense to me that he would kind of be harkening back to feudal Japan history. I, I like it. Mm-hmm. I want to see what his current new costume is going to be. I haven't seen a good shot of it yet from the new X Men roster. I can't wait to see what the final kind of look is. Oh, yeah. And by the way, I meant to say vestments, but I misspoke. Sorry. <laughs> okay. And you got Captain Britain here with his cup of tea, which is nice. Okay. I love that <laughs> because Kurt is like, whoa, what's going on? And he's like, eh, don't worry, it's fine. Yeah, we're, we're good. Back in generator will be on in two seconds. We're good. He, he couldn't give a less of a fuck. Like, he just. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Everyone else but is like, freaking you know, out. He's like, "Nah, I'm good." Earl Grey, we're good. To like, go. You know, what is missing from these pages is the stuff I actually care about. Like, they're trying to cement what Magneto has done here as a horrible, horrible thing. Having the thing getting out of the bath isn't that bad, but we don't mm. see any of the horror. Right? You see some cars knocked about, but then they say, "Oh yeah, by the way, people who are in surgeries or in hospitals, they're dead." Planes fall out of the sky, like the carnage, the horror, the kind of worldwide global destruction that happened as a result of this. You don't really see anything, it's, and that's very. I don't like that. 
it's funny because Sunfire has no way to protect himself from it. Like, what is he? Is it because his suit's kind of techy and that hurts him? Like, how would this EMP wave hurt Sunfire? Yeah, I, I, I shouldn't. Yeah, um, he's, he's has atomic fire. He doesn't care. It's interesting that the idea of like the real repercussions of an EMP would be explored a little bit more in mm-hmm. Uncanny X Men three thirty six and X Men fifty five. Um, when you had Onslaught doing similar thing to New York and there were shots of like circuitry frying, you had people like you saw like someone working on doing a surgery and waiting for backup power. So like they did kind of come back to that, you know, real world repercussions of what that would do. But you're right here. We don't really get to see much of it at all. And, and I feel like you need to because they're trying to up the stakes and then everyone makes a huge deal about what this is and how horrible this is. And then instead of just telling me they're, they're sorry instead of showing me they're telling me which is the cardinal sin right you show don't tell especially in a visual medium like comics yeah. um, and they had two pages they had two so yeah mm-hmm. you're right adam rather than saying oh by the way this takes place in the marvel universe how about you show the thing holding a plane or a train has careened off of the tracks or i don't know whatever it is and he's trying to hold it together while people are in danger yeah. how about that then because they're pretty sure, like, uh, uh, in one of these pages, like, Xavier says, like, we fear many hundreds, perhaps thousands have yeah. died. And then they just kind of move on from it. Now, one of my favorite shots, which really seems to go well with the the voice of Cyclops from the animated series, is Cyclops with his laser pointer looking, <laughs> like, giving a speech. <laughs> the positioning of that, yeah. Like, there's just something very, first of all, very phallic. And also, what is he holding? It's like a pointer of it's some kind. It's a laser pointer. Yeah. Is it a laser? When it, it, the coloring for you, is it a laser? Because to me, it just looks like like a knife. It looks like a blue it's sword. Blue yeah. stick. Yeah. 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 Oh, it's right there in front. Like the, 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 the angle the co- of that is just yeah. Like, it, it is very phallic, right? It's by his groin. There's a giant ball or sphere in front of him, and he's yeah. got a phallic kind of <laughs> right. That yeah, being that said, the idea of Cyclops kind of being the Boy Scout and going over like this is what we know feels very like the the 90s animated series yeah. voice yeah. goes well with this like the Boy Scout sure, giving you sure. the rundown but then there's this jab at him which again is this like edgier Xavier who doesn't care about his students you find out later for the conversation with Storm that he wasn't even involved in the making of that plant or is it I can't remember anyway conversation later like oh what's Beast and Gene what is the problem that you don't find the plan to be strategically sound or because you weren't included in it that he wasn't included in the actual activities on Avalon, or that Xavier didn't ask him for his input. I didn't. I find that ambiguous. I wonder if it's because he was excluded from the building of the plan, or because he wasn't on the team. I don't know. It could be either one. Well, I mean, I, I one thing. So, as a kid, I loved the um, the computer shot of like the different people on the team, like Wolverine and Gambit, and the, you know, the oh my gosh. like that kind yeah. of stuff. <laughs> I thought the same thing. The but, ending of the cartoon, yeah. Yeah, but like I remember as a kid being like, oh, that's so cool. I love like seeing them kind of back up to each other, them describing like how they were partnering up the teams. Like this type of stuff is not important. Like it doesn't need to be there, but it's so cool. But as a kid, but I loved it. They the art of it too, so it looks like it's like this computer scan, so it's a nice touch. On it. Yeah, no, it, it looks great. It's And even at the bottom of that page, I like that kind of. Spot and this is a very nineties, there's a lot of ellipses, a lot of like dialogue that where it's like people kind of leave hanging dialogue where you have uh, Cyclops saying, uh, and you need us down here to stay, to carry on. And I'm like, ooh, that just feels like nineties writing to, like there's there's just a lot open there. Can, can I ask this? This is a, maybe a minor question. Um, the names speaking of the the rotating 
models. Yeah. <laughs> the names in my copy are made invisible by the light. Is yeah, was white the, on the white. Was, yeah. That's still true okay, of so ours, even in the it's restoration. Still true of yours? Yeah. I, I don't know if I have my single issue anymore of this. I might. I wonder if it was always that way. I feel like it, it probably wasn't because I, I feel like they did it a certain way so that the newsprint carried it a certain way. Like, I think when it's on our glossier paper, I think we actually, with better paper, actually makes us look worse. I think It was yeah. foil stamped hollow in the 90s. Because you would, you would hope so because they say every comic is someone's first. So it would be great if, like, you know, little Molly gets this comic and she's excited to read it and she's like, oh, Wolva and this. <laughs> and there's Avier and Quick and Ogie. Like, that's what the names look like. It's it's kind of important to know who they are. It's telling you who they are. So. Um, I, you know what, uh, I'm, I've, again, I've read this a lot, the original issue. I'm pretty sure that you can read it in the original. I think this is just a flaw in the restoration. Oh, well, hopefully the Epic Collection fix it because I'm going to buy it again. <laughs> <laughs> so again, uh, uh, you know, the '90s were a time of um, a, a lot of action figures. I'm surprised we never got, you know, a Fatal Attraction Strike Force, you know, X-Men action figures because they give them special yeah. armor for this. Didn't we? I, I don't thought think, we did. I don't think we did. Let me check. Continue. Um, and, and like, it's a weird, it's a weird kind of color scheme too for like Xavier, but. I, I again as a kid I love this kind of stuff they had like special spacesuits so that they can make sure that they can which makes sense functionally um, I also like how cool Wolverine looks like he's like got his you know arms clenched in front arms of him he's, yeah. you know what he's thinking there I Keep wish up, but... I, he's probably thinking I wish I could put a stogie in here like right he was already smoking earlier and again very of the time you always have Jubilee blowing her bubble gum I like that I like that, but I, I I can see what Casada was on, you know, on about about getting rid of cigarette smoking and cigars because it is very obvious. It's very apparent here that it's kind of like it's really cool. It seems like it's drawn in a cool way by a cool artist. It, it does highlight the smoking, I think, too much. And later in, in Wolverine, is also what is Wolverine that we're going to read? Yeah, seventy five. He says at the end, "I have to quit these." Mm-hmm. So I, I like to. I like that it's it's gone. I don't. I don't really mind. I just think it's weird that I like it so much, and there's something probably wrong about that. Thinking yeah. how cool it is. I mean, I, I've talked with Brevoort before, and that was exactly. He was like, the problem is that people think it looks cool, and I'm like, yeah, okay, you know, I because I, I agree. And with that. we all do. Yeah. We all love the the the, the beard, the half, the half beard, or the the grizzled kind of. Beard coming in on Xavier, we love that. We love it on Magneto. We love it on everybody, and we love the Stogies. And maybe one of those is better than the other. Yeah, I mean, since the characters are what they're all about, like the gruff, tough characters, they're going to have a Stogie because they're all the same, right? Like they're really uh, a lot of how they portray Thing, Nick Fury, and Wolverine is very similar. Um, So it makes sense. They're all kind of they're the smokers. I never Um, wanted to go smoking because of it, but it did look cool. And the thing makes sense because he's Jack Kirby, and Kirby liked a stogie. Yes. But everyone else doesn't necessarily need it. Anyway, I did not find action figures. I thought I could find. I thought there was, but I couldn't find them. What I did send in the chat is a link to a statue of Magneto tearing the adamantium out of Wolverine. So if you want to commemorate this moment <laughs> in X Men history on your mantle for your Mima to come over and, and admire, you can apparently. Say, oh my God. Is that official or is that someone? Wow. I don't know. It says there's incredible statues on uh, Roberto Bog 10 collection something something. That's really distressing to be honest. Yeah. 
Wow. Yeah, there's other there's other versions of this too of like Wolverine on the ground and his arm essentially being melted into metal. Which when we get there, I will bring up because I always thought that was actually quite horrific when I was reading this. Um, obviously, there's not not a plot hole, but I mean, a lot of any of this happening really hinges on Colossus just happening to be the one on watch at this time and letting them get through. And like, well. Yes, I know, right? Because they would just have to have fought the acolytes instead, right? And I guess they—I guess you're saying they would have lost. They wouldn't have even made it to Magneto. Yes. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Yes, does hinge on that. No, because <laughs> that—that's why they were able to take out the acolytes so quickly, right? Because they—they they had the uh, the advantage of surprise. Yeah, and, and they comment too. Like Xavier's like, "Oh, look, there's so much Shi'ar technology here." Oh, I guess he doesn't realize it. He's commenting it because he's seeing it. Um, so much of this is, is Imperial uh, or Shi'ar technology stolen, no doubt, from his time as headmaster of my school. So it, he's putting it together. I guess he doesn't realize how sophisticated Avalon is. He, as far as they know, it looks mostly from the outside. They don't say this, but it looks it – looks, it's gray mountain, right? Yeah. Which is already advanced tech, which is already – they're going to have sensors to detect invaders. But I guess he didn't realize how much tech was in there. Um, you're right. It does fall apart with the idea that they're not even cloaked. They didn't even bring somebody to cloak them. Who who has powers to do that? To, to cloak them? So yeah, cloak them from technology. What's his name on the Marauders? Uh, Not Scanner. Is it, is it Scanner? Yeah, uh, I think so. I have to think yeah, about so it. He, I think he has the power to like mess with technology. Or she's well, the I acolyte. She's the, the moment where they they teleport the acolytes Nexodus, and then you see Exodus get bumped out with the escape pod. It reminds me of Spaceballs. <laughs> Um, very nice. I'm trying to find this guy's name. Someone is screaming at it, screaming in the in their own car as they drive. Don't you know his name? The Marauder who can mess with technology. I'm pretty sure it's or mutant powers. Actually, is that what it is? Oh, I think he shuts down mutant powers. Uh, was it Scanner or I, I mean, Scanner is a, Scanner's an acolyte. Yeah, I don't think it's Scanner. Then I think I know a Scrambler, isn't it? I think Scrambler is the one. Yes. You're and welcome. I think that he doesn't help with tech. So maybe just Forge. How about that? Yeah. Or, well, they could probably Shadow Cat. Should face do some crap? There you go. Shadow Cat and or Forge could do it. It is Scrambler. Okay. Uh, he's he's known for being able to mess with your powers, I believe, not with technology. Let me just mm. read this on my own and eat my own advice to Paul to do your own research. Sorry, Paul. <laughs> I suck. <laughs> He's uh, ours to uh, disrupt the function of any system with his touch, whether the system be a living being or a machine. So there you go. Obviously, they don't want him because he's participated in the butchering of mutants, of marauders, sorry, of Morlocks. And I think he may have died hmm. in that attack. But um, yeah, uh, Shadowcat or Forge. Anyway, you should have written this, Adam. I should have what? I should have what? <laughs> you should have written Fatal Attractions X Men 25 because your plan would have been better. I, I'm sure that's not true. Um, it's it's interesting. I, I, I very much enjoy this issue, but it's easy to say that a lot of this, yeah, could have been trimmed down because there's a lot of dialogue. There's a lot of jawing around when they're fighting. And a lot of the fighting, like, again, is a little repetitive. It, it's, you know, it, it's really, it's it's obviously meant to, you know, really build up the tension so that you're you're on you're in this enclosed space it's it's a losing battle you have gene and xavier really doing everything they can to really uh be able to stop magneto mentally and then you have the big moment right so like it's all teed up for that but it does feel uh you know padded out 
you have page after page of each X-Man kind of fighting him and him just sloughing them off just like he did before. So you're seeing a lot of this. I do look at Xavier is saying that though. He's like, there's no time. Like they meet Rusty and Skids and they're talking. And he's like, no, no time. And he like puts them to sleep and then they move on to the next thing. So he, he Xavier actually, for, to his credit, does try to be pushing, moving things along. But you're right. Once he appears, Magneto appears, there's a lot of the same back and forth that there was in the previous Uncanny issue. And, um, you know, Rogue tries to talk him down again like she did in X-Men, I think it's number two. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this... This, you tell me how you feel about this panel. Speaking of violence, that seems like it's been maybe muted. Uh, Magneto, Gambit's saying basically you're a Nazi, and he says silence X Men. And there's this panel of him getting hit in the mouth, which looks like which was what mm. looks like a sharp piece of metal, and yeah. then it looks like his his mouth is being cut open, oh. but it's been colored like flesh tone or yeah. uh, that's probably not accurate uh, like almost a beige like it used to be blood I don't understand I always thought that was extremely violent but we'll see that in a second when Wolverine makes his attack another thing that's supposed to be extremely violent that is completely sanitized very yeah. new uh, it looks like he's barely scratched so I wonder if the artists were like you guys say this is the final battle we're going to make all this stuff he- heck of violent and then they were like no like the comics co won't let us get past this but there's still like even even some of the language though like I mean again kind of highfalutin but like the page before Wolverine kind of jumps in and slashes Magneto you have him uh, Magneto yelling out you know my son must be slain like that's pretty like yeah. you know that's not the most uh, gentle language but yeah it all kind of leads up to that big moment where the adamantium was ripped out and when I look at it it's an iconic image it's a great shot of Magneto as he does it I'm curious. I, I would love to see if they had never done it and, and it was done now, how much grew, like it would be so much worse. It would look so much more yeah. horrific. Like this is, yeah. as we said, like enough to get by the code. And I feel like I'm okay with that. Um, yeah. But what about like no blood or even claw marks on Magneto? Like it's weird. When I read this, like, Oh, he missed. I thought he missed. And they're like, no, Logan, no. How can this be? By reading it again now, I'm like, is, aren't his guts supposed to be hanging out? Like, isn't this a mortal wound? Isn't he? Isn't there a way to hold the iron in his blood intact or something so I it's mean, not all falling he, out of his chest? Isn't that? Looks like just cut his shirt off with an X shape. Like, yeah, that's, that's all it looks like. I mean, yeah. you do see some blood in the page before the adamantium gets ripped out in the top of the page. You do see a little bit of, of blood, or maybe that's yes. just supposed to be more of a costume. costume. It could yeah, be both. Like the costume. Yeah, so I'm like, okay, if you really want to up the ante here, Magneto needs to show, we need some confirmed kills, or at least very strongly insinuated kills from the uh, electromagnetic pulse. It has to be a human cost. I'm not saying I need to see bodies, I'm just saying he's become a mass murderer. Gambit almost calls him Hitler. He, he looks like he gets his mouth ripped off for that. Um, Wolverine goes for a kill shot. Either Wolverine sucks at what he does, or he's the best at what he does. And I, my understanding is he's the best at what he does. So he probably wouldn't have missed. That means he's cut open Magneto. Magneto's going to die. And that's why Magneto takes it to the next level because Wolverine has crossed that line. And and so it's – but it misses something of that drama, of the escalation when we don't actually get the consequences that they seem to be describing in the, in the text. This is like the opposite of one of my frustrations with um, – you know, I, I like a lot of the stories Claremont does, but I find that he doesn't have enough trust in his artists. And there are other there are other authors who are guilty of this, where they describe everything that the artist has already drawn. Oh, I see you're crossing the room and you're grabbing that picture off of the wall, and the artist did it. So it's there. 
So don't explain to me in narrative boxes or in speech what the what is being visualized. This is the opposite of that. They're describing things that aren't actually happening. No, Logan, how could you do that? Do what? Scratch his costume? Yeah. So I, I, I love the issue. I have a lot of nostalgia for it, but it seems it's not it, it's not matching the energy of the actual visuals. No. And then for example, part two is even the big money shot when the is coming out in the in the in the blobs, his costume is totally fine. Like he's there's no yeah, harm, there's no damage. Oh, yeah. So like yeah. he drew that panel first before he drew that page already previously. I don't know, but it's unfortunate that like it's, and then you flip on and the damage is back. But it's it's very bizarre that it's missing in that big splash page. And then less can be more. Like I love this shot afterwards. I don't love it because I love Logan. I don't want to see him in pain. But there's this shot afterwards of him leap on his back. And he's, he's looks like he's yeah. dead. He's all there's heavy inks on his face. So to me, I was like, his body is so destroyed that they they couldn't show it to us. So they had to shadow it. They had to have him in shadows and let us try to imagine what does he have any skin left? Is it just bone now? What's going on here? All you can see is red blood, red eyes, and some of his hair and his teeth. Uh, his skin looks gray, so I feel like that less is more is actually more horrific than what they do let you quote unquote see, um, and that haunted me. Like as a, as a young teen, I was like, oh my gosh, like what? This is the most disturbing thing I've ever seen. I hadn't even watched really horror movies at the time. I wasn't exposed to a lot of this violence as a kid. So this that shot just has stuck with me forever. Hmm. Um, one of my favorite shots of uh, Colossus in general is the one. Uh, oh, where yeah. he's standing over Magneto's body and he's got that kind of leg raised. Um, it's just, sure. it has always been a shot that kind of resonates and I always remember that. As well as the one on the next page where it's just him alone holding Magnus's body uh, in the ruins of the of the space, uh, space station. I always thought it was very haunting as well. Like, it's interesting, like, he, he, he is a character who really gets screwed by Fatal Attractions. Because, like, Colossus, you know, loses his sister, he's distraught, he, in his time of grief, Magneto preys upon this to get him to kind of come with him. So he goes there, and then he mistake like to protect his own friends. He allows them to get onto the space station without alerting anyone, so that to try and hopefully there won't be as much bloodshed. And then this all happens, and it's his fault. And he you yeah, know, he blames himself. He blames yeah. himself for this. And now Magneto has been left in a vegetative state. And he's hoping that this is his his penance for not being there for his sister, um, and that he will take care for her, care take care of her. And it's just so haunting, and it's just so sad. And the character, you know, it takes years to kind of get Colossus back to being Colossus. Uh-huh. And then X-Force, he, he gets his legs shattered by trying to bring Russian mutants out of Russia to Krakoa, and he kind of goes back to this, like, rather than being this kind of happy-go-lucky, cheerful artist, he's kind of, in a way, back here, but not at least not because of everyone he knows dying and his entire philosophy has been shattered. At least there's not that faith crisis, I suppose. It's a different mm-hmm. approach for him now, but it does seem like Colossus can't... I mean, and others have said this too, I think, like, that um, he doesn't... There's not much you can do with somebody who's just a good guy. He's just a nice, sweet guy. Like, what do, what do you do with that? He's boring most mm-hmm. of the time. So, next up, we have Wolverine 75, and I will say that the cover, now that I look at it, doesn't make any sense that he still has the claws, <laughs> like metal and claws. Also, his skin it doesn't break. His skin just gets poked through with what looks like adamantium, but it was colored in a way that makes it look like he's just a spiky Wolverine. 
Yeah, it's it's a weird cover, but I mean, it's it's very like it strikes you. Like you yes. you, you don't not see this on the shelf. Yeah, and like even the even the artwork, the way that uh, you, you look at all the other chapters we've been reading, and they all use the traditional borders. And Kubert's art goes straight to the border. Like there's no. You don't like it, it, when I look at this from afar. I can tell which issue, which pages are this issue because a lot of it goes right to the edge. No, it's not every page, but a lot of the pages are much more to the edge than you see in the traditional books of the time in terms of the uh, the borders. Yeah, and he's experimenting with frames, so kinetic. He's got you know um, when you go into the psionic realm, you've got um, yeah the frames themselves are bowing and bending and. There's extra damage or something volatile's happening. It looks like there's like a Dutch angle, and he's he's just doing so much. Uh, mm-hmm. It looks like at one point blood is spattering around the edges of a frame. Um, he's just for a panel. He's just I, I love his experimental nature. That's something that I love about this artist. So you got Adam Cooper doing the art. It's written by Larry Hama. You got uh, inks by Mark Farmer, Dan Green, and Mark Pennington. And you got uh, colors by Steve Bucciolato. And I do think the colors are a lot more vibrant here than we saw in the other chapters um there's a lot more personality to them they definitely are making use more pushing more of what they could do with the limited coloring at the time uh again they don't have access to malibu's coloring yet but uh they're definitely pushing the limits on what they can do in-house and it's much more than we'd we'd seen previously and the issue itself is like it's an interesting hodgepodge it's kind of like you're reading three different issues at once because you have the weird, you know, all the mental stuff in, in Wolverine's mind, which is where you have all the experimental art really pushing it into extremes. You have, you know, this journey of the Blackbird trying to get back to Earth. Um, and then you also have kind of the epilogue, so to speak, where it's everything kind of after they land and how that kind of pushes Wolverine into the next stage of his own journey. Um, so did you find that it, it resonated with you guys as, as, you know, did it work? Did it capture the energy of 25 and give Wolverine a, a suitable kind of ending or did you think it could have been better? Um, I like Larry Hama from I love J. Joe work in the comics. Um, I like the issue overall. I just don't know if you need the extra layer of the let's figure out plane crash part of it. Mm-hmm. Like I think you already have this big incident. I think you could have really done some cool stuff um, you know trying to keep Wolverine alive best you can through the Sonic Link and all that kind of stuff. I don't know if any of the extra stress and crazy because consoles are exploding, wings are practically falling, like Star, Star Trek, right? When the, the bridge explodes after a proton torpedo, like all kinds of crazy explosions, people getting sucked out of uh, hatches, and like it gets really extreme. Like, there's no way anyone's surviving this, especially with Wolverine critical condition at this point. So, it's a little, an extra over the top stakes you didn't really need. I think you could have slowed the pace down. You had this big moment, you can focus on trying to save Wolverine. Get back to Earth safely. Like you have all the extra beats could have been there. I don't know if you needed the craziness of the plane crash added. Yeah, I mean, you're right. They probably didn't need that, but uh, it does heighten the tension, right? It makes it more memorable, and you have that great moment, which of uh, Wolverine kind of finally waking up and going to save Jean. Like, of course, he would save Jean. So I always felt yeah. like, you know, it, I agree with you. It doesn't need to be there, but it creates an element of payoff because otherwise. Wolverine isn't necessarily active in his recovery. Like 
he doesn't it doesn't you know what does he need to do in order to suddenly wake up or suddenly be okay and not die right whereas here you have this juxtaposition because you have everything falling apart and they need him to be alive they need him to be awake to help out but he's having this own kind of psychic journey and so you have it kind of dovetailing nicely so that it it means that he actually does something he's active otherwise he's not as active a participant per se like he is in the psionic realm but this means that like that journey is going to lead to a physical place where he's able to save genes. So I, I get what you're saying. It doesn't really need to be there, especially with everything ramped up to 11 with everything exploding. But I mean, it, it makes it more memorable. And Cyclops has an interesting line at one point too, where like, Oh my God, it's happening again. Just like when the shuttle flew through the radiation storm back when Jean turned to the Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Like, was that like a throwaway line? Did something come of that later? I can't remember, but it's an interesting place to put something like that. Or just maybe something to, to remind you of that was the thing that happened at some point in expedition. Yeah, I, I don't know. I thought of, I thought of that as just hanging its hat on the reference. I thought of that reference before I read that line. I'm like, oh, this is like how many times is June going to have to hold something together? She's already holding Logan's body together, and now she has to hold the ship together. And yeah, remember back when? And then it, uh, so I feel like it was just like they Emma wanted to make that reference, and then they just hang their hat on the reference of like we're going to tell everybody what we're referencing. Like it's an illusion. I mean, they use that same level of reference again, I believe, in X Men forty five or when Avalon finally comes down when when the Holocaust or Nemesis, whatever you want to call him, when he fights Exodus on Avalon and it finally you know breaks up and starts um, you know um, Cyclops and Jean need to get out of there. I think that's the issue I'm thinking of. I think they get on something and she's trying to keep it together and they do the same tick tick tack. From the original Phoenix issues, um, but, I thought Tick Tick Tack was uh, Fantastic Four. Well, I think that's a different Tick Tick Tack. <laughs> okay, but yeah, no, there's a lot of Tick Tick Tacks. So, but yeah, no, I, uh, I overall, I, I, you know, I dig it. You know, it was a fun issue. Cubert uh, really was killing it in terms of, you know. Some of the stuff is super experimental or very, like, strange and weird. But, again, because of the context, you go with it. Like, when you have that first shot of uh, Magneto with the weird, like, I don't know if it's, like, red energy in the chest of Magneto for, like, no reason. Like, I guess that's, is that supposed to symbolize where where Wolverine struck him, maybe? Like, I don't know. It's, yeah, Nate's showing it. It's a weird, and even, like, the next page where you have, like, the weird, um... Uh, I don't even know what that is. Uh, I guess it's Wolverine, but like the way he looks, it looks really weird and twisted as well. Yeah, some well, of the art is. Well, yeah, because... But again, it, well, the, it always feels like there's a point to it. Like, it's not just he's decided to lose his mind and just throw this in and say, eh, that's fine. Like, it feels like it's it's all on purpose. And obviously, the, the big money moment of the issue is that you finally have Wolverine go into the danger room, which seems like a horrible idea. Um, he just kind of goes in, and then he, he has these claws. And when you first see them, like, they're not even colored very flesh-like or like bone-like they're like they look very like they're still metal but like it later on like they look like giant jagged pieces of bone coming through his body like it's it's pretty horrific and kind of crazy and that's something Kubert would play with is that this whole period of bone claws he made them bigger than he could they, they could they should ever be like they don't make any sense i'm not showing it very well to uh to the guys here but like the the claws are nuts well, those yeah, they're of, too like, big. One pound before is more egregious when you sit down yes. on the tree and pops them. Yeah, no. Yeah, they, like, don't, uh, they don't fit in his forearm. <laughs> they don't fit anywhere in his body. Like, yeah. Well, this is also a concern with lots of actual figures of Wolverine after the early 90s ones, where they actually only were very tiny, stubby things. Later on with Marvel Legends, some of the times the claws are so big 
like in the X-Force release line, the one that builds, I think it's Sasquatch? Um, is that how it goes? No, or is it Wendigo, Paul? Is that Wendigo. X-Force is Wendigo. Uh, the X-Force Wolverine, they're not only big, but they're really, really thick. Like, they, they don't fit in his forearm. If you were to take those claws and put them next to his forearm, it wouldn't. It wouldn't. I, I don't mind the slightly more exaggerated claws on the action figures than the, than the teeny little things. That would be more real. Oh, the teeny things are sucky, yeah. yeah. Sure. Um, so this experimental art, I mean, I have a different take on this. Like, yeah, I, that's a cool interpretation, Adam. I like that, that it's like maybe where he slashed there, maybe where his power originates. But this part here where um, Logan relives being attacked by Magneto, there's this horrifying bottom head on all the thread of what looks like his skeleton being torn out of his skin. Mm. And his skin is now flopping about up here, this black silhouetted skin, and the silhouetted skeleton with spiky adamantium also being pulled off of it. It just feels like this. This is how he's, and they mentioned this, right? This is how he sees things. This is his reality. This is what it felt like. This is a piece of what it felt like to be Logan in that moment, like his skin was being torn off. And so then everything else after that is like a is like a floppy skin suit of Wolverine with no skeleton, and then he basically says he wants to die with a tear running down his eye. Like it's very emotional. And then when you see him again later with Ilyana, you can still see it's like a it's like a deflated skin suit version of him. He's not whole. He's been torn in pieces. So I see that highly experimental stuff is very impactful, very emotional. Trying to get inside of the head of a man who's been shattered. Um, so I love this issue so much. I, so why, why is Ileana the? Uh... I mean, she just died. I mean, that's that yeah. would have been the emotional touch point for readers at the time. But yeah, I mean, realistically, it could have been Rose. Could have been many other people. Like he's died later on, and he sees Rose before. Well, and and also with it being Ileana, she also has descended to hell. So it is really nice, actually, to nod that she's now an angel in heaven. That mm. in her death. She's not entrapped, at least from Logan's perspective. She's not in some sort of hell. She's not a demon. She's got this beautiful kind of ending to her life as the snowflake. So I, I think that's an interesting thing. Also, like Adam said, um, in a bit defensive, uh, more a bit of a defense of this choice from Bahama, but um, if they were just having this an issue about Logan fighting for his life, I feel like it would be a lot like 303. I feel like it would be a lot of a, of a, of a more somber issue, and everyone's kind of like, you can pull through Logan. It would feel a lot like the Ilyana issue of her death, which just happened. Mm. By making it escalated like this, it's not only a very Wolverine-y, high-octane action issue, but yeah, the stakes just keep rising and rising, and you're like, it's, you're right, it's crazy. It's it, 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 You can imagine the blaring of alarms every few seconds, and then uh, Cooper keeps drawing these great um, sparks showering down from all the consoles, and no one knows what's going on except for Bishop, who seems to be holding it together, and Gene and Xavier. And I just love the teamwork here. This is kind of like a... I don't know, uh, an issue where we see the, the coordination of the X-Men at, when they're at their most desperate. Um, yeah, it, they give Quicksilver the commander's seat so he can fast stuff to manually adjust yeah, everything to keep feeling cool. everything. Yeah, that could you imagine this? Yeah. In, in, if this was a movie scene, if this was a scene in a movie, it wouldn't just feel like a bottle episode. It would just feel like, this is a cool scene of his yeah. arms moving really fast, and he's like, we need you to do this, Quicksilver. He's like, well, actually, Bishop already thought of that. That's why he had me be here. And 
Jean and Xavier teaming up to go into the side world to help Logan, and then one getting pulled out because things are careening, and it just feels like you know uh, Apollo thirteen combined with um, you know. Superhero comics and the X Men at their best, and they're coordinated. I love the idea of telepaths on the X Men. They don't do this as much anymore. Actually, Hickman's era, they're doing it more than they were in the 2000s. That these telepaths, one of the things that's so beneficial about them, and this happens in great games like Overpower as well, they give you great buffs and benefits that they can coordinate the team by saying, Look, someone's behind you. Uh, Logan, make sure you do a backflip over Beast because this guy needs to get kicked in the face. Like that kind of thing now coordinated in this very, very intense, small, um, claustrophobic space. Um, and the only one who really seems to have no clue what they're doing, sadly, sadly for me, is Rogue. She's just kind of like moving from seat to seat. But this girl has super strength and flight. And when the hatch pops off, they're like, Gene, Gene, you got to close it. And that's true. Maybe Gene should close it. But also you have a Ms. Marvel character over here who can just go over and grab the door and pull it shut. The high winds don't bother her. So I'm only sad about Rogue's <laughs> lack of real any kind of contribution to this. But I love un- um, Ultimate X-Men number one. I love it. I bought it off the racks. It's a great Bacalo art of them getting shot down the leaders, Xavier, Storm, and, and Cyclops. You guys have it in your collection. I don't have it. Um, and careening down into, like, Antarctica. Um, and you can see that same idea of the sparks, and they're, sh- and they're falling down, and now they have to work together as a team to survive the elements. Um, these plane crash issues apparently are just cool to me. I don't know what it is. <laughs> but I just feel like, I, I agree, it can feel like a bit much, but given the context of Wolverine and how different this feels from Ileana's, and I guess I, I can definitely see why it needs to maybe go dip dip down a little bit after uh, after X Men twenty five, but I don't know. It, Wolverine is fighting for his life, so I'm, I'm okay with all of this. I, I love this. I when you consider that this is also additional pages and it's all Adam Cooper glory. Oh, this is it's breathless. And when he grabs Jean, <laughs> and she's like, he's like, you, she's like, you came back from you saved. He's like, no, Red, you saved me. It's just, it's so beautiful. I love it. And then after, I'm sorry, I'm just rambling. Um, afterwards, with him sitting down with um, Jubilee, and there's these like this part that Adam was talking about. Um, these beautiful sequences of the the grounds of the of the mansion. This is the stuff that I find really compelling. This is the stuff I love about Krakoa mutants for some reason in a beautiful kind of serene green um enjoying nature enjoying real life rather than always in metal always in the metallic we've spent the whole issue in a metal casing now they get to enjoy the grass and hang out together uh i wish more issues were like this this is so good (laughs) in my opinion uh, I have two final kind of thoughts about this particular issue. One is the first shot, again, of going back to when the claws are first kind of unearthed and we see uh, Wolverine kind of struggling with it. I, I think it's a beautiful page because, first of all, I'm surprised with how much red they were able to use uh, in terms of because there's a lot of blood just kind of gushing out of his around his, yeah. his hands, which, given the time period, is surprising. Um, I love the use of all the different narrative boxes to show that that's everyone talking, but it doesn't matter who's talking. Just this is how you know crazy everyone is reacting to what's happening and how uh, panicked they are. So it doesn't matter who's speaking. Um, you can kind of figure out how who's 
dialogue some of it is, but it really doesn't matter. And it, I think it really serves to, you know, kind of accelerate that moment. And even, you know, the, the arg at the top could be silly in any other context. But here it really works to drive home the agony and that no regular speech bubble would be able to kind of convey the level of agony that Wolverine's feeling at this moment, except for something that goes across the entire page like this in such a way. You're very right. That's actually, uh, not actually, not to pretend that you don't make good points frequently. That's a really good point. It would seem hokier, actually. It would feel like Darth Vader saying no if it was in a speech bubble. Um, also, to add on to your point out here, Adam, here's Moira's face. If you can see Moira's face, she looks like that is genuine surprise. So apparently, if we're going to play ball here, uh, in, in none of her previous lives did she know that those claws were natural. That this is also her figuring out for the first time, which also suggests that fatal attraction doesn't happen in any other reality. That Wolverine skeleton is never pulled off by Magneto. Um, I don't think Onslaught is either. I think it's confirmed that Onslaught is unique to this universe. So Onslaught comes from fatal attractions. Uh, so that's obviously not intended, but need to consider. For sure. And this is obviously a big reveal, too, that um, Wolverine always had the claws. That was never something added to Weapon X because as far as we knew until now we believe that was the case right even in the animated series you see the, the three lines that look like claws being bonded to him in the in, in the cartoon so even if you're just only an X-Men based on the cartoon you're, you have that belief as well it's actually yeah. and, and this is probably unintentional and I, again I'm probably doing the extra work here is that again that page with all the the different uh, dialogue boxes that aren't being given to a specific character as he's having this agony felt like a stylistic callback to the different times in the Weapon X storyline in Marvel Comics Presents when they first gave him showed the bonding to the adamantium because you had a lot of that same idea you you would see moments of Wolverine you know, having things done to him, and you'd have these narrative boxes talking about it. Now, in that case, you knew who it was, but it did, it did feel kind of tonally similar. This, it wasn't, it was never from Wolverine's standpoint, never from his perspective. We never got to see what Wolverine thought about the adamantium being put in. It was always through an outside observer. So even here, you're having this horrible moment occur to him. We're not experiencing it through Wolverine's eyes. We're experiencing it because of the narrative boxes through everyone else's. I would love to hear the story about how they made this decision. I would love to know where this came from, how much Hama was involved in it, if when they were creating this crossover event thing, if they were like, we're going to do a few things here. We're going to have Adamantium pulled out, mind wipe, claws are his own claws. Like, if that was, was that what they wrote on the whiteboard <laughs> before they started everything? And they went, let's go backwards now and see what we should, we should do for issue 300. I don't know. A lot of weird pictures. Uh, there's a note on the wiki fandom saying during the 1992 X-Rays conference for the big X-Men crossover uh, executioner song, Peter David frustrated over the lack of actual X-Factor characters used in X-Factor number 85, joked maybe Magneto could just pull Wolverine's adamantium skeleton out of his body. However, as Fabian Aceza later recalled, none of us laughed because we thought it was a great idea. And that came the genesis of that idea so it started with that for, I mean it makes sense it just seems like that's all everyone remembers and yeah, yeah. Um, the one last I guess closing thought on this I do like the letter that he leaves for Jubilee um, but more so than the letter I like that he leaves her his hat and so like that last kind of oh. image of, of Jubilee looking out and, and his shirt yeah and Jubilee oh I didn't even 
I mean, she did. I didn't even notice. Oh, wait, wait. Her shirt. I think that's the shirt she was wearing when yeah, she was in bed. Though I believe that's the shirt she was already wearing in bed. Oh, okay. But the cowboy hat he left for her with the note. So we see her. See, he ends up on the bike topless. I thought that was weird. So maybe I thought I assumed the shirt was his too. I don't know. He's, oh, he's got a. He's got like a. He's he's got his tank. Sweat. Yeah, he's got his tank top. Yeah. Yeah, he's got. He's he's wearing clothes. You can see the the one band of it, but. So like I always just like that moment because of just the look of her kind of understanding and then waving and then again it holds it, I loved her wearing the hat I don't know why but it just seems like just, it's, it's really cute yeah it's very sweet it's a sweet little again because they have such Thank a gosh. nice you know familiar relationship and then just his look back and just kind of waving at her that just felt very genuine yeah that curse was tough to read though the way it's uh, that font yes it was. <laughs> Well, he was educated as Little Lord Fauntleroy, so he has some cursive training, but then I'm sure he's lost a lot of it since then. Yeah. Uh, so the, the, the last thing, which I, I can't imagine we'll spend a lot of time on, uh, is Excalibur, um, which definitely feels like this, you know, Wolverine feels like the real, epi- like the, you know, the, the epilogue after the big kind of climax. And then, oh, yeah, for sure. And then Excalibur just feels like, you know... If this was Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, it's like, you know, the last couple epilogues that you didn't really want. But they're like, okay, I guess they have to be involved somehow. Um, It definitely feels shoehorned in more than the others. The other ones felt a little bit more, like, kind of natural moving forwards. Again, there was Wolverine, uh, sorry, Magneto was coming back. You had this, you know, greater sense of the, you know, how dangerous the Acolytes were and what this could mean. And you you were moving forward, and then you had the epilogue with Wolverine, you know, trying to put him back together, you know, physically. And literally, and then you have this, and I just don't think that this this book doesn't work for me. I, I find the art is very lackluster. Uh, it's not very memorable. Um, yeah, and this Joe Mad covers out of control. <laughs> <laughs> the proportions on, uh, on not only the the women, but also on like Peter, he's just <laughs> quite a yield sign, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that head is so small. Well, yeah. I, well, yes, this issue for sure, they, they get all the X-Books in the crossover, so it's kind of shoehorned. But here's another interesting Moira moment through the Krakoan lens where she says, I tried playing God once over no less than a person like Magneto himself. I learned me lesson. A mm. person's got to be free to make their own choices and his own mistakes in life. Interesting. Like, is that not like, okay, like Hickman found that little... You know, panel and build House of X based on that alone. That's crazy. Well, I suppose you could go there with it, yeah. But it's one of those things, right? It's one of those things that just feels like, yeah, it, it, it's more exciting to read some of these older issues now because of that. And um, I kind of want to seek out more and more issues. Of uh, Adam was talking about maybe collecting every single issue of one character, trying to find every single appearance. And oh, now players. I kind of want to find every Moira, yeah. That's kind of crazy. That's is is there something that would, that would dictate all of her appearances she's ever been in, all the issues? That, that makes exists. me wonder if Hickman, I wonder if Hickman did that. He's like, okay, give me every issue she's been in and read it first. I mean, that's something that seems, it feels doable. Yeah. Um, no, just in terms of credits, uh, they're very hard to read. They're on the, one of the pages, uh, the second page of the issue has the credits, but the, um, they are, you have to really be looking at it. And these are not things, something that will come off the page easily. It's written by Scott Lubdell, so he's really doing, du- you know, double, triple, what, quad duty here. He's doing a lot of diff- different writing or plotting. Yeah, Ken Lashley and Derek Robertson, Matthew Ryan are the pencilers. So you got three different pencilers. So, again, a lot of different styles being involved. Uh, and then Inkers, God, it's hard to read. you got Cam Smith, Randy Elliott, Randy Emberlin. That's two Randys. Mark Nelson, and that's uh, that's the Inkers. So that's a lot of... 
a lot of conflicting styles, and I don't think they always work together that well. Um, yeah, it's just artistically, like, especially, I think the biggest jarring thing that I had is that you have these weird pages of the X-Men showing up, and everything looks really extra, you know, brightly colored and um, yeah. not as detailed. And then you flip the page, and you get this shot of, of, of Colossus, and it's just, like, tonally a huge shift. The art is completely different. Uh, it's much more somber, uh, darker colors. It's just, the, yeah, the, the issues are kind of a mess. The use of Cable feels really shoehorned in, considering he's, it, he should just yeah, be a mumble of flesh somewhere. That shot of uh, Colossus uh, you're, you just described is very Dio Dotto-esque. It's almost like... Dio I'm pretty Dotto sure they adapted this, pay, this shot into a trading card at some time. I'm pretty I sure I've seen a trading card version of this. Uh, yeah, Cable, I guess there's an explanation for how he recovered, but that's a very good point. Cable shouldn't really be here. No, and I didn't feel like it, it gave me much, and I didn't really enjoy him being here. Well, the only two things I like really about this is the conversation between Gene and Rachel and the conversation between Rachel and Cable. I yeah. like the summer stuff. Yes, that's about, but even then it feels half-baked because they don't really know who the character is yet, though. So, like, Yes, they're just deciding, but there are some some indications that there is some kind of connection definitely between uh, Rachel and, and Nate and Nathan. They feel like they're going in that direction. We didn't really mention this when we talked about X-Force, but like X-Force, I think we mentioned it only briefly, is when it says it's like, okay, by the way, my name is uh, Nathan Dayspring, Ascani, or whatever. And he says that here. Like, that's in this issue. He, doesn't say, he, he says it here as well, but in the X-Force um, issue, that'd be just, what is it, five? Okay. What is it, X? Um... Yeah, X Force Twenty Five. He there's this whole exposition. His cannibal's like, I want answers, and he's like, You've been asking me for answers for year, for years. Well, here's everything that I can tell you now because this is all Nicieza knows. <laughs> and then they'll do it again in Executioner Song. They'll do it again. Like there's all these like agains and agains and agains where he's like, All of a sudden, I'm going to tell you more things. So that's actually a really big deal in that X Force issue. Like, uh, I'd say that's probably one of the most noteworthy things. You get Cable's real name. That's that would have been if you were a cable fan. That would have been like wow at the time. That's true. And here he's like, I noticed something is, is bonding us together, and she's like, Yep, yeah, but that's for another time. So I, I I like that, and I love that Rachel's all kind of really upset. She's like, You don't, you know, Jean Grey and Psychops don't talk to me. I know they're not my real parents, not from this timeline. And Jean's like, You can keep the rain off uh, off you, Rachel, but you're gonna you're still gonna catch your death in this weather, which is a very mom thing to say. And yes. She goes, Yes. So what do you care? She's like, you don't like me very much, do you, says Jean. And Rachel says, actually, I love you. <laughs> You're the closest thing I have to a mother, right? And so then they have this moment, and then Jean strokes her hair kind of out of her, her face and says, I'm sorry. And then you're right. They just kind of leave it. There's a moment that's nice, and they leave it. But at least there's that moment. I, mean, I guess is so. Is this the first time they really have a conversation? I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about something completely separate for a second, but I think okay. the uh, the most fun or the, the most I laughed out loud reading this issue, which maybe is not the way I should feel about reading an issue of Excalibur, is uh, right after the last page where they have that kind of cool shot of, of Phoenix and Nightcrawler and Kitty, the next page has this pinup about the next issue, and it is the worst pinup ever. Because <laughs> everyone looks like a demon? Like Xavier looks way too happy that like Kitty Pride is touching him. Like I don't know what's happening in this shot, but everyone is has the biggest grins, and it's characters who should not be grinning. Like and Cyclops doesn't look like a handsome young man. He looks like my dad. <laughs> it's so awful. Like he's I, a I handsome old man. Gene looks fine. I guess Kurt doesn't quite look awful, but like 
Xavier looks really scary. Uh, Rachel looks like she's uncomfortable. Like someone made Lockheed her say cheese. Green. Yeah, I don't know, man. Yeah, Come Lockheed's green for some reason. Like this is yeah. this is a terrible piece of art. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's still eighteen times better than anything I could do. But still, like it's it's not it's it made me laugh though. Like I was just like, oh man, that's really funny. Like this is this is something. You mentioned the last page too of uh, the new Excalibur, um, and I know people love the previous Excalibur costume with Kitty, like the kind of the blue and blue, mm-hmm. which is nice. Um, I just I'm partial to this one. I love this one just because this is what her costume was in the '90s when I was reading mostly. But the so tech the, shoulders don't make any sense. What the um, the pouches on the shoulders? Yeah. No, it doesn't make any sense. I just like it because yeah. this is what I liked when I was younger. And I'm like, well, this is so cool. But I recognize it's not her best costume. I just you're right. I though. like it better than the I, do, I do like it better than the astonishing costume. Though I I do. Uh, you're right, though. I, I do enjoy this short-lived Excalibur costume that she gets at the end here uh, compared to the one she had before. I, I was never a huge fan of that version that she had for most of Excalibur up until this point. Oh, just, you don't like the blue one with the like the silky kind of. No, big, big arps. Like no. with the no like with, the, with pajamas. No, it's yeah, with like the shoulder pads and like the weird sash. Like no, I don't know. There's something classic about it that I like, but um, no thanks. But the, but the, the also this '90s. Like I, I'm calling it the '90s one. It's not actually true. This one in the last page. It's also like an overpower, you know, costume that was used that a lot. Is, that yeah. part, which is how I see a lot of characters. Is like, oh yeah, that's. That's the correct there's, there's a page here where they talk about a bunch of the characters that have like left or aren't going to be around anymore. And I swear to God, I have never in a com- I've never actually read a comic book with Kyle Lund before. I have his. Uh, they, they had a rookie card for him as like one of the rookie characters, and I think the the '92 Marvel set uh, that was like a, you know a big deal at the time. But like that's the only reason I knew about that character that he was affiliated with X with Excalibur. And all these years later, I'm like I've never read a comic with this guy. But it's because well, of that card. It's imprinted in my mind. He's like a member of Excalibur. But like literally, it's probably the only time I've ever actually seen him in a comic is the one shot of him here, and he's already gone. I'm glad to hear that, Paul, uh, Adam, because Paul and I, for your next birthday, we're, we're going to spoil it now. We've collected every issue of his appearances <laughs> for you to have, all 17 of them, and you get to read them at your leisure. We want to spoil? We want to release that here to the, to the fans. I want to see your original art because it was all super cheap. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they were giving it away. Can you imagine? Like, I, I can't even imagine if he's been around in seventeen issues, though. Like, I think that's being that's being charitable. If anyone can't tell, of course we're joking. We would never spend money on that. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't read Excalibur. Maybe I would love this character when I start reading Excalibur. I don't think so. <laughs> um, any any other kind of thoughts about uh, about this particular issue? I feel like we're we're kind of you know very light on it, but like. I didn't find it was very interesting or enjoyable. Like the whole thing with the, with um, Colossus, I actually found it, it felt felt regressive. It felt like you couldn't just let his decision be about grief. It had to be explained by something else. Like I felt like it took something away from Peter. It didn't give him something back. Well, I mean, it did take away his head injury. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he has that speech at the end where he's like, "No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna honor my commitment. I'm gonna go back with the acolytes, and I'm gonna be like, I'm gonna be the moral compass of the acolytes. I think I can do some good here." So I'm like, at least he gives a justification beyond, "I don't like Xavier." Um, yeah. And he does say that when you first found me, I was working for the state, and I was an atheist, and you gave me something to believe in, and I can't believe in that anymore. I'm paraphrasing this part, um, but I have to believe in something. So it does. 
tackle a little bit of what it means to have a faith crisis, to really strongly believe in something and then to not believe in it, but there's a vacuum there. And so he's he's currently filling that vacuum with the acolytes, even though it's clear to him, it it should be clear to the reader, that he's not really um, a devout worshiper of Magneto. Like these other people are going to become more and more so radicals as they go on. So, Nate, it would appear that Kailan has had made 33 appearances. That's more appearances than I've made, so that's pretty good. In, in fact, I'm shocked by this. He uh, apparently, and so I am going to have to go back and reread this, apparently he was in in the uh, in X-Force number 12 uh, that came out in November 2020. Okay. I'm, I mean, I, I would go back and I would read some of those, so sure. So he was, he was in that, and then prior to that, he apparently was in the five issues of the... Uh, Age of X-Man, The Amazing Nightcrawler, which is, you know, out of reality anyway, so it doesn't really need to be there. But uh, but before that, he did show up, apparently, in uh, two issues of The Uncanny X-Men that was during that weekly series that led into, uh, the, you know, the uh, everything the Age of X-Men would become. Yeah. Uh, you, said, you said X-Force 2020, didn't you? You said, like, that's that's like Dawn of X stuff. Yeah, he's I been in, that's what I'm saying. He's, he's been in Dawn of X. I thought like I thought you were referencing right. the Bisson the Bisson years like the no, year. I'm talking um, like currently. So, so I've read that issue and don't know who he is. Okay, <laughs> I don't know how big a part he played in that issue, but apparently he blobs bar in the background. Is that yeah, maybe. You? Yeah, I, I mean someone someone found it and at least cataloged it. So isn't that okay. great? <laughs> I, I love sure. stuff like that. I like that we people should, notice not, that. I, I, let's not no. Let's not talk about this at the end of our conversation. Let's name your favorite acolyte instead. Mine's <laughs> Unisione. I love her. I think she's like her design is super cool. Her powers are super cool. What are you a Sinyaka fan? What's going on with your favorite? Do you have a favorite? Sinyaka is memorable looking. Yeah, he's got a cool look, but he's a psycho. Yeah. Do you like Chrome? Uh, do you like Vought? Amelia Vaught? I do love Amelia. I, well, I always like the uh, the like the uh, relationship between her and uh, and uh, Charles. Yeah. And and also her Magneto too, because it's like the now my new kind of best friend is your old best friend turning against you. No, no one has any strong feelings on acolytes. Uh, I'm gonna stick with Cortez. I think his ability to overpower you to make you go mental is a very interesting. Uh, you know, way to push powers. I'm curious yeah, to like see it, how they run with that and, and sword going forward as well. Yeah, that is interesting that he's back now. Yeah, for sure. So I, I, I know you don't want to talk about this. But I have gone through X Force Twelve. I, I, okay. I think, I think the one shot of uh, if it is in fact Kylan, there's a one shot when uh, Colossus is brought back to Krakoa and he's in handcuffs. And you see a huge smattering of people. It would appear that he is one of the people. Great. <laughs> smattering. But if you want every appearance of the character, you must have this. Well, oh, wow. it's in the mail. I'm surprised. Yeah. Oh, there he is. Yeah, yeah. No, he's definitely there. <laughs> <laughs> he is such a small, like, small shot, but he's there. I, see, I like that stuff, though, because like, I'm curious what the reference material would be like for someone like that. To be like, okay... We want there to be like a lot of people in Krakoa, but like we we have a lot of mutants already, so like let's populate them with people we don't use anymore. And someone's like, okay, guess what? I have this guy Kailun. Let's use this guy. No, I like that too. That is fun that they're doing that because everyone's supposed to be back, and it would be nice to have more diversity than the same twenty characters all the time. So for sure. Um, okay, so let's talk about Fatal Attractions on a whole. 
So I know, Nate, you've already kind of answered this for me before, but if you could go back in time, you'd stop yourself from buying this trade? <laughs> well, no, I mean, I'm glad to have had this conversation with you, Bill. So it's it's valuable for that reason. But yes, if we weren't having this podcast and I bought this, I'd be like, I should have waited for the ethics. Because I really think that they will find a way to collect this the ethics. I think that they will do that. Um, I didn't need it here. I'm, I see. I guess my, my apprehension for you there is that I don't think they're going to collect every chapter like together like i it, there's only like four or five Maybe not. as we've Maybe discussed not. no they might not uh they might do a thing that they did with executioner song where they're like okay this is an x-force and that's okay or they might uh, do it split it up yeah i mean maybe there is value in having this uh but your real question is how do i feel about it i i would say i really 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 loved wolverine um x-125 is become a classic no matter how you feel about it and it's part of what i read as a younger person and it's kind of up there in terms of like the the high drama of the of the soap opera and important for learning understanding onslaught if you feel that you need to understand that uh, some of us feel we really need to understand red onslaught and you can't understand red onslaught unless you start here um so i would say wolverine 75 fantastic x-men 25 you gotta read and um probably x-factor what is it 92 probably the third most enjoyable one for me and so those are the ones I would want to read again mm. how about you Paul final thoughts um you know what it, it covers off some really big points in X-Men lore and history and as we've kind of discovered there's lots of you know nostalgic you know, trading cards and stuff that have come from this moment you know uh the whole ring is adamantium ripped out is huge. The the genesis of onslaught is is a, is a part of it. Obviously, they, they kind of go back and similar to how Moira was something done afterwards. This is kind of a way to connect those two things, um, you know. But I, it's nothing. I you know, yes, some of that book one content was a little all over the place and was not quite as enjoyable, um, just because of some of the relevance of some of the stuff. But I think that book two, you know, I think there's some really cool stuff to be read there. I think yes, there was some repetition some of the nonsense and enough and this and that and um but uh you know very much fitting of of what the content was at the time and really good x-men stuff so it's like something i i you know like oh my god it's like such a chore to get through um like some issues were but overall i think it was it's, it's a it's a good x-men crossover from from the times because it'd be respectful of what week the content was of that era so i wouldn't uh deter anyone from reading this stuff yeah I, I would concur with most of that uh that you guys have said i mean i, I think it, it it has a it has a place uh a special place in i would i would deter i would do some deterring you do some deterring <laughs> x-men 304 i would deter because <laughs> it's too many butts oh no so that's 303 sorry no that's three i'm not, I'm not fine i'm okay with the butts it's the 304 of just like it didn't need to exist it could have just been Oh, and Magneto grabbed Colossus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that. that yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of grabbing of characters. So I'm gonna I'm gonna end with a, a bit of a um, uh, trivia question for you both. Um, how many appearances in comic books do you think Professor Charles Xavier has made up until current? If you had to <laughs> guess a number, <laughs> somebody's on the Wikipedia. <laughs> Not even Wikipedia could get me this deep into the rabbit hole. 
Oh, gosh. I don't know. Are you going to give us, like, three choices? Are we going to have a multiple choice? Yeah, or a range? Uh... I wanted to see what you, what you guys would come up with. Price is right style. Like, don't go over. Um, close to two without getting over. I think price is right style is a good way to do it. Um, Who wants to go first? One dollar. Um, I would say 600. Okay. Paul? That's too high. 500. I, I have 500. You want to 500? Yeah. Right in the middle. Eh? Um, Professor Xavier's appeared in? Yes. God. Um, so hold me if you do five hundred or one. <laughs> now this is this is up to current, including X Corp number one that came out this past week. Oh my gosh! Uh, I, I gotta go with the Marvel Universe six one six. Okay, oh. the correct answer is one thousand and ninety. Wow! Good luck getting every appearance of this guy. Good thing I said six one seven. Uh, and that's on the record, so. Uh, and and the, the last one, as a as a nice juxtaposition for Charles Xavier, is Magneto. How many Magneto appearances do you think he's made? Well, it's got to be much less, you'd think, right? One thousand, jeez. It's <laughs> a lot of issues. Paul, you get to go first this one time. Yeah, it's one time. Oh, ooh. <laughs> I mean, this particular one time. time. Um, let's see, so Magneto. He's been an awful lot of nonsense too, right? Uh, <laughs> I'm going to give him. I'm going to go 800. 800, okay. I'm going to go. I'm going to go one dollar. <laughs> I would say it's probably closer to 200, so I'm going to say uh, one, right? Close okay. To going so Magneto has appeared in 718 comics. What? Yeah, there you go. What the heck? You seem very upset about this. I'm not upset. I'm just. I, I don't care about that. I, I'm just astonished. It's that high. Yeah, it does seem. Well, okay. So here's here's one that I think there'll be Wolverine in the in the the prime Wolverine, not other Wolverines, but prime Wolverine. How many appearances do you think the prime Wolverine has made? Fourteen hundred. What do you think? Higher than that, Paul? I think higher. I think we're talking like. Over two thousand. Oh, because uh, every appearance across the entire—I'm thinking X books. If we're talking about every Marvel universe crossover, five thousand and Avengers and spotlights and oh my gosh, you're saying two thousand? No, maybe thirty-five hundred. Wow! If Chucky X gets over a thousand, I would think that Logan should at least have two thousand. You're gonna you're gonna beat me at this time. I'm gonna say two thousand, and you're gonna beat me again. Three thousand thirty-seven. What did Paul say? He said thirty-five hundred. He's too high. He went too high. So I just, by default, I just <laughs> hooray! I win nothing. It's that's it's crazy though. Actually, like what what I find more surprising. So I'm going to spoil one instead of making you do it. But Cable has appeared in a relatively close number to comics than um, than Magneto actually. Uh, C- Cable's been in 628 books Magneto's been 718 So considering one character's 30 years younger than the other Yeah kind of I guess How many solo books Magneto had compared to Cable, right? Yeah Yeah, no, exactly. that's very true I, I would be curious to come up with uh, uh, Based on this uh, this list Which seems pretty exhaustive in terms of obscure and uh, Is to who's been in the most I would imagine it would have to be someone like Spider-Man or Wolverine Yeah, for sure uh, do you want to? We'll end off. Can you give a number for Spider Man? 
six thousand. Paul. Uh, I'm I'm with yeah I'm I'm in the six thousand range for for Spidey sure yeah four thousand sixty one you guys went way too oh, high wow. way too high for Spidey because oh. oh. for a lot of his history he didn't have that many books whereas Wolverine has been like consistently in like every book. What has this podcast become? It has become a bit of uh, a bit of, uh, of trivia for you guys. I don't love obscure trivia. He loves you it. You should call it. You should have another podcast called "A Bit of Trivia" <laughs> with Adam Chapman. <laughs> yeah. All right. This is the last one for Paul. Scarlet Spider. How many appearances? Oh, uh, like Ben Riley Scarlet Spider. Ben Riley Scarlet Spider. You're really thinking about it. I would say less than 500. Pardon me? Less than 500. What did Nate say? I said 200. 253. Wow. Which is actually surprisingly high. You think so? Yeah. I actually did not think it would be that high. I mean, he's currently appearing in Iron Man, so I guess that helps. <laughs> <laughs> like, there's some appearances where I'm like... How- where did he show up? Oh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. He was in a, a Conan Battle for the Serpent Crown. That's an obscure reference. Battle for the Serpent Crown? Yeah, because uh, Conan was looking for the Serpent Crown in the 616 universe, and he was in Las Vegas. And who was in Las Vegas at the time? But uh, Scarlet Spider. Interesting. Do you think Scarlet Sp- oh, Sorry, do you think Ben Riley has been in more comics than Kane? Yeah, I would say, yeah. I mean, that's going to be my guess, but I would I would assume so. I hope yeah. not. Otherwise, uh, I feel like something's gone, you know, very wrong. I know Kane had a bit of a run as Scarlet Spider for a bit, but still not enough to usurp uh, that, that I should count. I mean, he was around, but yeah, he, he, there's no way he could potentially no. match it up. No. All right. Well, again, thank you so much, guys, for coming on to talk about, uh, you know, an, an interesting book. Uh, Fatal Attractions. I'm glad that we all enjoy it in different ways, and we also have it in all different methods. You have Paul with his digital, you got <laughs> Nate with his uh, his non-yellow cover tra- trade paperback, and me with the gigantic uh, hardcover. So that's so. Thanks so much for uh, coming back. The next time we get back to our regularly scheduled programming, which is Dawn of X, I believe it's New Mutants finally. Uh, yeah, yeah. You sound more hopeful yeah. than, than Nate than Paul's face. I'm I'm happy to talk about it. I don't know. It's just okay. I will say as a preview, it was the the Dawn of X stuff that I was least excited to read, um, but I still found things to enjoy. So I don't know. I don't. I'm happy to talk about it. Okay. Well, again, thanks thanks to my guests for joining me. You can always email us at comicshenetigans at gmail.com. Rate the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. And be sure to catch us uh, where in a couple weeks we will talk about New Mutants Volume 1, or, or at least New Mutants by Jonathan Hickman, I should say, uh, as part of the Donovex uh, run of books that we've been talking about. Thanks again. Enjoy.